Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grill and JR with the voice of professional wrestling, the one and only Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Connie. I'm very good. It's good to hear your voice and uh, good to be here with all the folks again. Appreciate their support and subscribing to our program for free because you damn sure get your money's worth. <laughs> <laughs> but we're glad you're with us. Uh, interesting show today. I'm kind of glad we're doing this Harley race thing today instead of trying to, trying to makeshift something last week and it also gave me time to reflect a little bit about that and i'll just tell you conrad I don't, and i don't mind being a, a wimp here but man I, I in my in the last two or three years my perception of death i've gotten to where i just the, going to funerals uh, uh you know i like celebrating life i like getting past the hurt and the crying and moving on because most everybody i know that's dying like Harley would not want that, but nonetheless, I think a week apart is a good thing for me. And I'm glad that we're going to talk about that today, among other things. Absolutely. We should mention, of course, last week and for the last several weeks, we promoted that today would be all about Sable, but, uh, we got quite the curveball last week when we lost the king of professional wrestling, the one and only Harley race. And we felt like it was fitting that we go ahead and celebrate his memory today. We'll always circle back to uh, Sable another time. So if you're disappointed that we're not covering Sable, stay tuned. We will get there, but we felt like it was most appropriate to do it today. And before we get into that, I, I guess, Jim, we should probably start the show out sending our heartfelt condolences. And it seems like a cliche these days when we, uh. we say thoughts and prayers, but a couple of American tragedies happened over the weekend. And as they started to unfold sort of one after another, it felt like something out of a movie. So if, if you were one of the lives affected by those mass shootings, uh, you know, th- thoughts and prayers aren't enough, but I don't know what to say right now, Jim, I'm sort of in shock that this continues to happen. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, something has to change. It's very frustrating. I want to let you know, not that it matters, but behind the scenes, we're working with AEW on the Starcast front to come up with some fundraising opportunities to do what we can, uh, for the victims of those unbelievable mass shootings that happened this past weekend. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of out of words about what to say here, Jim. Yeah. I just think we, we said our piece. Some people are listening, folks. We apologize for political overtone. It's an extraordinary week, uh, obviously in our country. And for those of you that are listening to our show, uh, outside the 
the United States borders. Uh, I'm embarrassed for us because we must look like pure idiots. It's just embarrassing. So we have to change the, a lot of things. And I, and again, I wish I had the damn solutions. The one solution I know would be to get the Dems and the Republicans together and agree on something for God's sakes and get off this goddamn right side, left side, live, you know, all this. I, I hate it. I, it's turned me against politics altogether. And unless something like this happens again, the, the merits of responding to Conrad, I don't pretend to think I will ever talk about uh, the politicians of America again because they are an embarrassment. Case closed, Ernie. Well, somebody who wasn't an embarrassment to their profession is the late, great Harley Race. Now, of course, we mentioned a few weeks back that Harley wasn't in the best of health and was really going through a tough patch. And unfortunately, we lost him on August 1st. And we're delighted that you guys are joining us today to celebrate his life and memory. And of course, this weekend, uh, they're going to uh, have a, a public celebration of life at his memorial service uh, right there in Missouri. And he's one of the all time greats. And you sent, you know, a really, really profound tweet when you got the news and you said that you never met anybody you respected more in this industry than Harley race. When did you first meet him? 1977, I was working for Leroy McGurk, uh, McGurk and, uh, his partner, Cowboy Bill Watts are having a, a, uh, timeout, shall we say. And Leroy was having a very difficult time of getting talent to come in. When the talent wanted to come in that area, uh, the part of the territory that Watts got was the lower end, as we called it, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Houston, uh, uh, and, and so we, we, uh, I'm trying to do my thought here. We just, we, McGurk was hurting and he needed a house. And so he booked Harley to defend the, uh, title, NWA title against Dory Funk Jr. And, uh, that was going to be in the Tulsa Fairgrounds Pavilion, I believe in 1977. I had been uh, in the business for less than three years. I was, uh, how old I've been? I was, uh, 25. And, uh, so I started, ref- I did a lot of things, but one of the things that was fun was refereeing, believe it or not, because we actually had rules and you could actually be a factor in a match in a good way and not just a, an unnamed, un, you know, un, who, we don't know who you are anymore, uh, name referee. So, uh, I refereeing this match and, uh, they're going to go now our Broadway. It's our draw, folks. 60 minutes through, as they say. So I go in the locker room, and, and uh, they had these little these locker rooms had like little sub sub locker rooms, and one of the smaller rooms, was sh- the door was shut. I walk in, and the smoke bellows out of it, cause it was a small room with no ventilation, and Harley was freight train those Marlboros, I believe it was, <laughs> and it was, it was it's like walking to a pool hall which I had done a lot of times in my life. I even owned a pool hall at one time, but I, 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 I was so thrilled, man. This is cool. It's like watching batting, watching batting practice with Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris from the 61 Yankees. There's, there's funk and there's race. Holy God. And I'd only seen Harley through, the, through some videotapes and magazines. He didn't work the territory. He, he worked for Bill. But, you know, the Bill's, uh, Bill was not a, never a member of the NWA. 
another neat stories for another time. And then, but he got NWA talent. He got flair there all the time. And then, uh, because the tip, the percentage that the, you had to pay the Alliance for using the champion was uh, obviously based on ticket sales. And when a cowboy brought flair in, for example, uh, we drew money because he'd, he'd load the card up and make a big deal. I'd be a big program where someone had worked their ass off to simply get an opportunity to fight for the NWA championship. It was a big deal. So, uh, anyway, uh, race and, and, and Dory are going to have this match. It's my first main event ever. And I've been refereeing off and on for a couple of years, but basically opening matches, uh, all the, all the heavy duty lifting was given to another referee who had, had experience, which I got. So I go in the room and I knock on the door, go in the room and, uh, introduce myself to Mr. Race and Mr. Funk. And, uh, he's hardly sucking on that Marlboro and Dory's sitting in a corner, kind of in a daze. I don't know if the smoke had got him or, or what, but he, he, or maybe he's just tired. He was looking like he was halfway asleep, relaxed, shall we say. And I, uh, Hardy said, how do you count? How do you count? So I got down on the floor and counted. I didn't know if it was a rib or not, or if I got on the floor, he's going to stomp me or something. Hell, I didn't know. So I got on the floor and I counted one, two, three. Do you count that way every time? Yes, sir. Good. And he says to me, remember, if you don't see me cheat, you can't break it. If you don't see me cheat, you can't break it. So they could utilize the referee as an asset in this, in this match. So, uh, I do my count, all that stuff's all done. And, uh, Harley lights up in no smoke and I'll take my leave. I think I had a couple more matches to call that night. And then of course that main event match. And so I was, here's what, here's a, here's a, here's a lot of things, Conrad, people might not think about every time there was a false finish. I'm going down to count. I count the same way every single time because these sons of bitches were can't kicking out at two and a half. Right. And, and I didn't want to be the black ball referee that was known as the, the, the naive kid, that fast counted, uh, Harley and put the title back on junior. I'd have been, I felt in my own mind, I perceived I would be blackballed from the business, something horrible, the, the Red Sox scandal or the Black Sox scandal or the hell it was. So, uh, I was nervous as a whore in church. And, uh, so here, but the last part of the story is it, it I, I love this whole experience. I never heard these two guys say a word to each other in the whole 60 minute match. Right. They go out and, uh, I remember, I can't remember what exactly what it was, but they had like four examples of a match they're going to have, but what do you want to, I was getting ready to leave, right? I'm leaving and I just didn't want to interrupt their thought because I wanted to hear more. I was, I was sponging the shit in. I loved it. What do you want to do? Well, they knew they were going Broadway. So they want, you want to do the St. Louis Broadway, the Kansas city Broadway, uh, the Amarillo Broadway, the Houston Broadway. They had all these matches that they just remembered. That were good and they're all Broadways. So, uh, I think, uh, Harley cause Harley was not going to lose. I think junior had to, he gave junior discretion of picking out what match he wanted to do. They're all great. They, they named a town. Hell, I had no idea what they're going to do, but it was all going to end the same way. Time limit draw. Right. But man, oh man, Conrad, they, 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 they had a hell of a match, an amazing match that, uh, uh, I just, 
couldn't believe they did that match on feel instincts and not on, but they didn't, they weren't at the ring all afternoon. Like a lot of guys are today, memorizing or going through their match, memorizing their spots, which I found to be embarrassing, but needless to say, that's the way of the world nowadays. But that's the first time I met Hardy. First time I met him, I, I refereed the NWA title match. Uh, and it was an amazing experience, but boy, one was wrought with the pressure. Well, and there's an interesting story about how he first won the NWA world title that maybe we'll have uh, a guest tell us sometime here on the show. I guess we should mention Harley was born April 11th, 1943, right there in Missouri. And, uh, as a young child, he had polio, which is not something to hear about these days anymore, but, uh, by the time he was 14, he first saw television wrestling and told his family that's what he wanted to do. And of course that didn't seem like a very lucrative profession. So the family members weren't exactly thrilled with this idea. And there is a story about Harley in high school where he got into a fight with a classmate that led to the principal kneeing Harley in the back of the head, trying to break up the fight. And of course, Harley attacked him and as a result, Harley was expelled from school. He's already like six, one and two twenty five, So he decides, you know what? I'm really going to give this a go at professional wrestling. And right before his 16th birthday, he starts in the wrestling business. And back then, man, wrestling was all about paying your dues. And you've talked about this for a long time, Jim, where you were the driver for Leroy McGurk and Leroy was blind. And that meant you sort of had to be his helper and handler and take care of him and order for him and show him where the food was. And just keep him on the right track. Well, he had to do that for uh, a very large man named happy Humphrey. And he was his driver yeah. and his handler. And, uh, he was paying his dues the old fashioned way. Was he not? Oh, can you imagine folks being a teenager just off the farm in rural Missouri, getting kicked out of school. And for a lot of families in those hard press, hard scrabble times, getting your, your children an education was almost the greatest thing you could ever do because it gave them a chance to have a better life than you. They had skills instead of working in a factory or whatever, they had specific skills that they could utilize. Uh, but he drove this happy Humphreys was over 600 pounds. And of course the publicist will say he's 800. I don't think it was 800 pounds, but he certainly was over five. Easy, easy over five. He was morbidly obese. And that may be an understatement, but think about this. When you're morbidly obese, such as, uh, happy Humphrey was your Harley had to wipe his ass. Harley had to clean happy Humphrey after he could find a commode that was strong enough to hold him. Yeah. So he could take a, so he could go to number two. I think he wrote about it in his book where he said that he would actually have to wash him and he would. You know, essentially the guy would lay down and he would use a mop on him with a garden hose. And this is how he broke into the wrestling business. And of course, when you're in the wrestling business in those days, much like these days, there's lots of driving involved. And unfortunately he was in a car accident and his wife at the time, Vivian is with him and they'd only been married for about a month. And in this car accident, she dies just a month into their marriage and he's rushed to the hospital. And uh, allegedly the promoter he was working for came to visit Harley and the doctors informed the promoter that they were planning to have to amputate him from the knee down. And the promoter put a stop to that. And even though they said, well, he may never walk again, he managed to keep the leg. It's 
a knee fracture, which gets four metal screws in it. He's got two pins in his left arm. He's going to have to take a break from wrestling for like 18 months before he's back up and moving around. And when that happens, he, he moves to Nashville and starts wrestling as Jack long, but that's something I guess that he has in common with Ric Flair. Of course, most people listening to this know that Ric Flair went down in, a, in an airplane and suffered a broken back and many others in that plane crash died, but he survived and he was told he would never wrestle again. And not only did he wrestle again, he was wearing gold. I don't know, six or eight months later. And that's sort of a parallel with him and, and Harley race. Did you ever hear about his accident that, that cost him his wife and nearly his leg? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Harley was a daredevil man. Uh, I don't know the exact circumstances surrounding this particular uh, tragedy. I do know that Harley was a speed freak. Uh, I was talking to Steve Austin one time, one of Harley's greatest days was, uh, when he started traveling or uh, I don't want to WCW, for example. Uh, he only would rent a Cadillac. So the company, I, th- I don't know if the, I think the company might have furnished him a car because we, we put him with Vader. Anyhow, uh, he only would drive a Cadillac on the road because it fit his demeanor, it fit his image. He protected the business that way. He wasn't driving around in a Taurus. Now, for you Taurus owners, there's nothing wrong with your car. I don't need to be added. But the bottom line is, is that it ain't got the cloud as a Cadillac. And you're talking about the, the champ here. So, uh, he, and, but when he got those, those, remember those, uh, what are those motors that they got out about that time? The four fifty fours or something that came in those big ass Cadillacs. I can't remember some over, over muscled up motor in these Cadillacs. He, he was in hog heaven because he loved to drive and he's a, and he was the, the driver. You'd think the older he got, he's going to be a, for years, for many years, Harley would not let anybody else drive. And he'd go behind the wheel of that Cadillac and off they went. And I know that, uh, Steve was telling the story the other day and it's a true story. I, I've heard this, I heard it from Leon from Vader when Harvey Harley was driving and he was drinking beer. Obviously they did drink and drive. Don't do their home kids or anybody else. Uh, when that beer was done, uh, Vader's job was to have the other beer already open. And the opening turned to turn nearest Harley. So the Harley just had to get the beer, put it right in his mouth and drink it. And that was Vader's job all night to, to open the beers and pass seamlessly passing. The empty goes out. The new one comes in. It's already open. It's pointed right to your face. That was Harley. And nobody ever said one word about doing any of those little things like that because he was Harley race. Inevitably, when you get a bunch of the boys together and they're sharing a few cocktails, the stories start flowing and eventually it almost becomes like a competition of, can you top this? And that was a story I heard a few years ago about Harley race. That was maybe the tallest tale of all. And I knew we had to get it on the show today. Unfortunately, the person who told me the story probably shouldn't be on this show telling the story. So we made a compromise. We're going to put them in podcast witness protection, but this is a story about Harley race. You've just got to hear the cop sees a car driving through the outskirts of St. Louis about two o'clock in the morning. Cars going a hundred miles an hour. Sees a beer can flying out the window, pulls the car over, shines a light in the window, beer cans everywhere, lit cigarette. Naked midget, Harley race at the wheel. The cop immediately 
recognized as a world champion. Sticks his head in the window and goes, Harley Race, is that you? What are you doing? Harley turns to him with a cigarette and beer in his hand and the midget in his lap and goes, Fucking. He let the champ off. He rode to fight another day. Harley Race was drinking, smoking, driving, naked, fucking a midget going a hundred miles an hour, got pulled over, told the cop the truth, and got away with it. That's some man shit right there. I thought about this a little bit uh, since his passing. I don't know. I'm a, a lot of folks know I'm a John Wayne aficionado. Love John Wayne movies because of my dad. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of John Wayne memorabilia here in my office. I'm looking at right now. Uh, and uh, there was a movie he made. John Wayne's last movie was called The Shootist. Uh, he played a, a, a sick and terminally ill famous gunfighter named J.B. Books. And J.B. Books moved to this little town and, and got a room in Lauren Bacall's uh, 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 home. And so anyway, uh, and his, uh, Lauren Bacall's son was played by Ron Howard, young Ron Howard, uh, after the Opie years, but to not too far and how he was, ex- how so excited he was that JB books, the famous outlaw gunslinger had moved into their, their house, their boarding house. I'm trying to think of. And so that's kind of how I felt knocking on that smoky door, going into that locker room, uh, in a Tulsa in Tulsa. I was, I felt like that Ron Howard character. I'm going to see one of the most, actually two, but I've met junior before and, and, and I, and I still love junior, but they're different characters, different people, but meeting the Harley race is like meeting JB books in, uh, my mom's boarding house. It's pretty damn auspicious. So that all tied into that match. I call that night, but yeah, the, the think about what he had to endure as a kid. To, to pay, you talk about paying your dues, wiping an 800 pound man's ass is paying your dues. My book. Yeah. So, and, uh, and cut he, your teeth in Nashville as Jack long and then stopping off in, in Boston in 63 is the great Mortimer. And finally, when he lands in Amarillo in 64, which is the funk territory, he starts wrestling under his real name, Harley race. He got some advice from his dad where he said, Hey, don't make somebody else's name famous. So he uses his real name all the way through the end of his career. And while he's wrestling in Amarillo, he becomes fast friends with Larry Henning, of course, the father of Mr. Perfect. And after they have a run in Texas, they move to the AWA in Minneapolis as a tag team. And they're in business together for about five years there. And that really is where he got his first big push. And he became handsome Harley race. And of course, his partner was a pretty boy, Larry. Yeah. Pretty boy, Larry. I saw Larry here a while back uh, a couple of years ago. Up in Waterloo at the Hall of Fame banquet, I said, "What drunk had the imagination to even remotely think that you're a pretty boy?" <laughs> he said, "Well, it's hidden beauty, kid. It's hidden beauty." <laughs> he he was a classic guy, but they were a really good team, and you don't hear enough about them because Henning and and Race uh, was so early, in, as far as technology is concerned. Not you a gotta lot of kinda, footage. You got to kind of look for it. Yeah, not a lot of footage of that. Mm-mm. The, the team winds up having to split up because surprise Harley was in another car accident. And as he's recuperating, he's talking to different promoters across the country and he decides he wants to make a run at singles and go after some championship gold. So 
He moves over to the NWA and quickly rises up the ranks there. And around that time, he has enough success to buy in and, and own part of the Kansas city territory. And, uh, that's a pretty it's called, big, it's called leverage. There you go. He it, lived there. He was a main eventer. He was getting over and anybody with, with sight could tell you that Hardy race was extraordinary. This guy is going to be special. And if you can keep him out of the hospital, he'll take his foot off that gas pedal a little bit. He, he'll be around for a long time as one of the top stars in the whole, in the whole world. And he was, Hey guys, are you looking for a great father's day gift idea? I know I was, and I found it a couple of years ago with paint your life with paint your life. You get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mom, your dad, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind, beautiful hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload a photo to create anything you can imagine, maybe in a special location or a favorite pet. There's lots of options. You pick the artist, the medium, and you even get to work with the artist to make sure it's perfect. You get started in less than five minutes, and you can get the portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word ROSS to 87204. That's ROSS to 87204. Text ROSS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Yeah, he has great success here uh, in 72, September 72. Uh, he wins the NWA Missouri Heavyweight Championship, and he'd go on to hold that title seven times. His last title reign would be in 85, and the, and the title would become defunct, and I guess he's the last ever Missouri Heavyweight Champion. And a lot of our younger listeners may not know, but you, you hear some people talk about that belt almost like it was the Intercontinental to the NWA belt, where that was sort of, Hey, if you win that Missouri championship, you yeah. might have a shot at the big belt, the 10 pounds of gold. Is that right? Absolutely. A very prestigious championship. And if anybody does the research and do yourself a, 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 a Google search or something, you'll find that some of the greatest wrestlers in the history of the business were Missouri state champions, because it was always perceived like Conrad, uh, illustrated much like the intercontinental title at one time. Uh, before everybody started making titles because a lack of creativity or whatever the reasons are, uh, the titles meant something. I, I stand on my, I stand and believe that there are too many titles right now and they're watered down and which of them have value over the others. I don't see they're all, there's a lot of parody in my view, but Harley was that champion. And, and what do you say? Seven times. Yep. I mean, think about that folks. So he's in there with. I think, I don't know how many guys that have been the Missouri state champion that were not hall of fame worthy or not in halls of fame. He's just, uh, it, it was amazing, but that Missouri title was a big deal. Much like the Houston title at some points, 
but nonetheless, uh, everybody knew he was a local guy. He, he wanted, he wasn't going to move away to some other place. He's back home and he, he could be your guy. He could be your, your, a, a focal point and a foundation, bo- a building block of your territory. And more specifically for, uh, Sam Muchnick, who was in St. Louis, by the way, uh, that, uh, you know, Harley was, Harley was a, a, a huge asset and you're going to take care of the eight time champion. And that was voted on by the Alliance. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, you know, a, a ride up a room full of pimply faced riders trying to decide who they wanted to make a champion out of. It was wrestling people that made champions out of guys that had all the right qualifications and, uh, it paid their dues. Right here, right here is symbolic of what it's all about. This is the world's heavyweight title. And when I say this, I mean it in all sincerity. The world's heavyweight title held by Harley Race. Not once, but twice. Over half of my life devoted to what I do better than any other human being in wrestling. I am not going to allow any human being to insult me or this. And when I say that, I mean it in dead sincerity. When I walk in that ring, I'm walking in there as world's heavyweight champion. I'm walking in there to defend what I hold probably more close than any other man has ever held. This is my life. You've heard your Ric Flair's talk about being cock of the walk. You've heard your Thunderbolt Patterson's. You've heard them all, Ole Anderson. They all talk about being the man. Flair parades around saying that he is the ultimate man. Well, buddy, this is symbolic of being everything that any human being ever wanted to be. That man is Harley Race. And for one of those individuals that I've mentioned, or the various others, to beat me, then let them walk around and claim to be what they are. You're looking at the world's heavyweight champion, the man that can truthfully say that he can beat any man in the world. I feel like we should mention that, that the names on this list are incredible. You know, obviously some old school names like Bob Orton, but how about Johnny Valentine, Terry Funk, Gene Kaniski, Dory Funk, Jr. Bob Backlund, Jack Briscoe, Ted DiBiase, a little guy named Rick Flair. I mean, you talk about a who's who, uh, this belt was, was a very prestigious belt and and the precursor to the world title. Absolutely. And him, a seven time champion speaks volumes. We should keep it moving here and tell everybody that he would win the big belt. Also in Kansas city, May 24th, he would finally beat Dory Funk jr. in a two out of three falls match to win his first ever NWA world's heavyweight championship. And that winning fall is decided with a vertical suplex. How's that for a finishing maneuver? And, and I guess we should mention the backstory to this match is pretty famous and, and you can sort of shed the light on it for everybody. But the rumor and innuendo is originally Dory was supposed to drop the belt to Jack Briscoe in Houston, Texas for Paul Bosch about two weeks prior to this. But unfortunately, Dory was involved in a truck accident on his ranch. And there's been some debate as to whether or not that actually happened at the time. 
because Dory Funk senior had a lot of power in the NWA and there's a bit of a rivalry between the Funks and the Briscoes at the time. And, uh, that truck accident has been one of much debate. What do you remember hearing about it back then? Conrad, are you inferring that my brother Dory and I were unscrupulous to the Alliance? <laughs> uh, I've heard of many stories about that deal. And here's the thing. I, I, I'll, I'll give you an opinion or two, but I got, I love those guys, man. These are guys that were the funks and the Briscoes and Harley. God almighty. The, the business wouldn't even ex- would be hard to have ever lasted through different controversies and so forth. If it weren't for men like them and, and, and often cases, those guys. So I, I have no, oh, no dog in that hunt, but I do know that there's, there's been a lot of stories about it and, and it basically came down. Like we talk about this all the time, Conrad, if it were true, it's going to be one of the two C's, right? Cash or creative. Sure. Well, creatively, if it's true, uh, uh, the, the funks had an issue, maybe dropping a belt to, to the, uh, to Jack. Uh, if you talk to Jerry Briscoe, you get one story. I'm sure if you talk to Dory, you get another story, maybe the same story. Hell, I don't know. But to me, it was, uh, there was something going on. There are too many holes in the, in the, in the alibi, so to speak, whatever the hell you want to call it. And I'm not indicting anybody for anything. Cause I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, but I, I do think that, uh, or sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire, but at the end of the day, it all worked out real fine because Harley gets to win the title in his territory, uh, from a great champion. And they have two out three fall classic. I've been, I've been told that before. And then, uh, then later on, two years later, I think. Harley would lose it to Jack Briscoe. Yeah. I think, I think even less than that, he won the belt on May 24th and 73. He would drop it to Jack Briscoe on July 20th, 1973. So Harley is a bit of a transitional champion here, only a couple of months in, but again, it's a two out of three falls match and uh, Harley wins the first fall. Jack wins the second fall with a figure four. And then the third fall, that fine finishing maneuver. Well, it's a Fez press. How about that? Um, I, I do want to mention though, that. That story is, is a pretty famous story about, you know, whether or not Dory was actually too injured to compete. And allegedly there were pictures of him at the hospital. And he says that he's driving the truck by himself and starts to chase a calf. And he goes over a six foot embankment and the truck overturns into a Creek and, uh, he separates his shoulder and has some head and face lacerations. He's only in the hospital for three days. So as it would, would so happen, that match would be the only one that Dory would ever miss in his professional wrestling career. Uh, so, that, you know, it makes you think he's got a case that this thing is blown out of proportion as he didn't have a habit. Of, it wasn't habitual missing. He was not habitually having issues I ever heard of on, on finishes or doing creative. So I, you know, I don't know. I just, it never struck me. This is why I didn't make a big deal of this ever in my, since I first heard the story. It just didn't strike me as the kind of thing that Dory Funk Jr. would do. Right. I'm going to leave it at that because that's, that's all I got to go by. Uh, you know, so I, I just don't know, man. I think, but it was, there was some controversy there, but you know, Hey, look, they worked together a million times after that. And I, and Briscoe worked with Funk a million times after that. They've made a lot of money together. So I just wonder if there was a, that many issues that afloat many, I mean, cards at played Conrad, that if it was really anything to it or not. So subsequently there seemed to be none, but who knows? Interesting story to talk about. 
I didn't think that there was anything on the face of the earth that would ever push me to do what I'm going to do right now. But Flair, you have pushed me as far as you're going to push. Right here is $25,000. And it goes to any human being that can eliminate Ric Flair from wrestling. Take a look at it, Paul Jones, you and your whole entourage of people, Dick Slater, Kabuki, the names, the list, it goes on and on. Any human being that can eliminate Ric Flair for me has got $25,000 cash. I'll give it to any living human being. Jack Briscoe, you are world's champion. You took the belt from me. You're the man. You can do it. It's here for you. Come and get it, please. Somebody take the damn money. I want rid of Flair. We should mention that when Briscoe beat him, that's when they retired the world title that Harley first held and they debuted the new belt that most of us know is the 10 pounds of gold. Now at the time it didn't have the leather strap. It had like a red velvet strap. It was made by a jeweler in Mexico. And, uh, this match in Houston where Harley's going to lose it to Jack Briscoe becomes, uh, the coronation of this brand new belt that we all so fondly remember. Let's fast forward to January 1st, New Year's Day, 1975. He beat Johnny Weaver in a tournament final to become the first ever United States heavyweight champion. And that belt has lineage. If you get creative and how you trace it to the WWE today, the first United States heavyweight champion, pretty cool deal there. And over the next few years, he's traveling all across the globe and wrestling in a lot of different territories and winning a lot of gold, like the Georgia heavyweight title and the stampede North American heavyweight title. And in Japan, he even wins the NWA United National Heavyweight title and the uh, PWF world title. So all over the place, he is a massive success. And then on February 6, 1977, he ends Terry Funk's almost two-year NWA world heavyweight title reign. And this becomes the second time that Harley is the world champion. And here he wins by submission, this time using an Indian deathlock to win the match. And I know that... Uh, Terry Funk had a lot of love for Harley race and campaigned for him to become champion. It was a pretty big deal for this one to go down and, and Harley to get another shot after so many probably viewed him as a transitional champion from his win a few years prior. Yeah, it was a very political, uh, scenario, the NWA, uh, board, the, the members, the voters, uh, a very political scenario. Uh, I talked to Ted DiBiase one time about at one time, uh, he was in the final three to be the new champion. And, uh, they generally are tried. They tried back in a certain period there for the champion to have a two year run, like a two year term after two years, you'd, you'd see if the guy could make all the shots and how he did in all these different territories and the tours that you took, you sent him on. And then two years you'd reevaluate. So when, when it came to evaluation time, uh, the candidates in the finals that, uh, Mushnick was touting. Uh, Sam Mutznick was touting was, uh, Rick, uh, Dusty and Teddy. Uh, those three guys are at the, at the top of the, of the, in the race, kind of turn the corner and looking, coming for home. 
the problem for Teddy was he'd primarily been wrestling from in mid South for cowboy Bill Watts, who was not a member of the Alliance. But when they, upon further review, they realized that Watts's the, the Watts's paydays back to the NWA from booking the champion were more than they were getting almost out of almost any territory that was recognized as a champion, not all of them, but most of them because in mid South was a very viable territory at that time. So, uh, there's a kind of a, a conundrum there. Some of the old school guys want to build to be a member of the Alliance and adhere to all their, their bylaws and let, and run and, you know, run his ship according to them. And that was not the Cowboys way. His way was to try to draw money and pay everybody what they're getting supposed to get and pay the Alliance or percentage. And because the gates are fatter, they, the, so are the checks back to the NWA, which is what Sam Mushick was a lot more interested in than, uh, some of that ceremony, I think of, well, Watts has got to be a member. So that hurt Teddy there. And then he had two guys that eventually would trade it back and forth for a while and Rick and Dusty, two great choices. And, uh, so that it was very political. I think that, I think that we talked about Harley coming to Tulsa in 77 for a dead terror, dead territory. The market was just battered and fried. I think one of the reasons he did that was, a, you know, was a kind of a payback to Leroy because Leroy for many, many years was on the, <clears throat> the, excuse me, the board of the NWA and he had a lot of power. As a matter of fact, Leroy controlled entirely the NWA junior heavyweight title, but he also had a vote and influence because he'd been in the Alliance so long, uh, on the, on the big belt. So I think there's a little payback there. P- politically, we talked earlier early in the show, unfortunately, about some politics. There are politics and wrestling, too, just like any other walk of life. But uh, I think that was a payback. So it, it was political, but Harley was a loyal son of a gun. And uh, But, again, I just can't go back and think on Conrad that, oh, yeah, that was a screw job. This happened here. We want to think that today because it's more intriguing. It's more interesting to talk about. Well, what's, what's interesting to talk about to me is, is Terry told me once that the, the situation with Harley winning the second belt was some of the – more old school wrestling promoters in the NWA felt like the NWA champion had to be college educated and yeah. shouldn't have tattoos. And that was two strikes against Harley. And so the, the people who were against Harley and, and sort of opposed that idea and that line of thinking that Harley should be champion would really hang their hat on, Hey, he doesn't have a college degree and he's got tattoos. Those are unbecoming of the NWA world champion. Yeah. I never saw Luthes's sheepskin. I, I didn't know Luthes graduated from college. What I'm saying, it's just the same. Anytime politics and that bullshit gets involved in any, any, uh, uh, scenario, it start it adversely affects, it puts a stench on things. Right. Uh, and it's just, it's narrow mindedness. That's, those are the same promoters, Conrad, that believe if you had one African-American in your territory, you were good. You had, you were good. Yeah. And, 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 and I know that I know powerful NWA guys. I heard a conversation. Powerful. The NWA president, Bob Geigel, one time had a, had words, the cowboy on the phone. Cause Watts had a brand new expensive speaker phone. He wanted everybody to know he got. So I was in his office working and his secretary, George Ann says, uh, uh Bob Geigel. And I said, you mean leaves? Oh, hell no. Stay here. Just don't say nothing. Okay. And they had a whole deal about, he's got, he said, hey, what are you trying to do to the business? A lot of guys that, you know, you respect that, that don't understand you what's happened to you. You've got a black booker and you got a black top baby face. What the hell's wrong with you? And Bill said, I don't see that. Color. I don't see color. The only color I see is green. 
it's not uncommon to hear about tough guys in professional wrestling. So Harley race is one of the many tough men in professional wrestling, but it is pretty unusual to hear someone carried as much respect in professional wrestling as Harley race did. And I got to think a lot of that is because of the respect that Harley had for the business and the guys in it. So to elaborate on that and tell a couple of really great stories, let's welcome great friend of the show host of what happened when Mr. Tony Schiavone. Well, a couple of things about Harley. First, uh, Harley was brought into WCW to be the manager of, of Big Van Dater, and, and he became like really a manager. They brought him in because they thought that Leon was a little bit, uh, well, too out of control at times, had a lot to learn about uh, being on top in the business, especially uh, in WCW, and they thought Harley would be a common influence to him and, and could help lead him uh, in the right direction. And not so sure that it always happened that way, but I know Harley did have an impact on Leon's life. I don't think there's any question about that. But the, the story that I know about Harley Race is one that's been well told in, uh, in World Championship Wrestling and especially Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Ricky Steamboat, Ric Flair had great feuds, and some of the best feuds and some of the best uh, matches they've ever had happened in Jim Crockett Promotions back before they became big international stars on uh, Turner Broadcasting. And back in the 70s, when Ricky Steamboat defeated Ric Flair for the uh, Mid-Atlantic Television Championship, they had this angle where Flair attacked Steamboat and uh, took Steamboat's face and rubbed it across the floor of the television studios. So to make him look, uh, make it look like he was really hurt, they brought Steamboat in the back. And Harley Race just happened to be there because the world champion was in town at that time and he was doing TV. Harley was there, and uh, as uh, as the story goes, he asked for someone to get some sandpaper, so they went out to a local hardware store to get sandpaper. Harley took the sandpaper and sanded Steamboat's face, the, the right side of his face, sanded off his eyebrow, and then grabbed Steamboat by the head and said, kid, this is going to hurt, stand by, and punched him as hard as he could in the eye to swell up the eye and blacken the eye. Uh, and then he told Steamboat, go out and, and do your interview. So Harley was, <laughs> was was truly, legitimately one of the toughest, roughest, rugged guys that ever stepped into the wrestling ring. And I think that story just shows you exactly the, the extent he would go through uh, to make sure uh, the injuries that came across on TV look legit. Well, so, and, and some of that thinking had to permeate some of the other territories because something happened in this era when Harley's champ, that you would think, man, that can't really have happened. Right. Not with politics, the way it were, of course, he's making the loop. He being Harley and picking up wins over Pat Patterson and dusty Rhodes and Dory Funk and Dick, the bruiser and Angelo Poffo and the original Sheik. But then he does a couple of title versus title matches against superstar, Billy Graham of the WWF. And the AWA world champion, Nick Bockwinkle, that seems like that is almost like a fever dream as much as, as these territories would be divided just a few years later, but, but it actually happened champ versus champ. It, it did happen for paydays, cash and creative, the cash, the talents are going to make, uh, would make them happy, uh, happier for sure. The, uh, monies that they were going to make was a, a great bonus because normally in those big uh, glorified matches, like in the, in the, in the Northeast with 
a superstar Billy Graham and and uh, and then AWA or wherever it may be with Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, there were great paydays there and big houses. And then remember that a piece of that, there's a piece of that house came back to the NWA. So the NWA got money from booking Harley, a booking fee. And then Harley got a big payday for being in the main event and getting a, a, a predetermined, uh, amount of percentage uh, of the, of the house. So it was a, it was a, those are both, both things. Now you knew what you hoped as a fan before you weren't prejudiced and, and you weren't preconditioned that it would be a, you'd see a, a title change in history made. You see some, one of these guys is going to lose their title and somebody's going to end up with two unheard of. Well, you don't talk but, about history. How about October 13th, 1978. Uh, if you're a younger wrestling fan, throw that in your Google machine, because despite what we would be told, I don't know, uh, nine years later. Seven years later, Harley race body slammed Andre the giant for the first time. It didn't happen at WrestleMania three. It happened October 13th, 1978. And it was Harley race who did it. And he would do it again on January 7th, 1979, this time outside the ring onto the floor during a match, pretty remarkable. And, and Ric Flair has gone on the WWE network a few times and told the story that Unbelievably, Harley race was the first and only guy he knew to do a vertical suplex with Andre and not just right. a regular suplex, but hold him. Yeah. That was in uh, Greensboro. And that's when Nate went back in the locker room after it was over and he said, you tell Andre what you're going to do. I told him suplex <laughs> and watch the body slam. So Andre, you know, big eyes, bushy hair. So Harley. The vertical suplex, Andre, Andre way over 400 pounds. Even in leaner years, he's, you know, high threes, low fours. And he, and Harley held him in that post position. And a lot of people don't realize how strong he was. It takes some, Hey, uh, the, the guy that you're suplexing can help you a little bit, but bottom line, man, you got one arm on that big bastard. You got to figure out how you're going to hold him up there for a while. And so notwithstanding the fact that then he got body slammed. But, uh, Hardy didn't ask for the permission for the giant, the giant Hardy was the godfather. Andre was the, was a capo. Andre wasn't the boss, even though everybody called him the boss. When Andre was around Harley, Harley race was the boss. Unbelievable. That's the respect he had with the boys. His, the journey he was on the, the, uh, pioneering man, the, 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 the dues he paid, uh, cause hey, we all knew about the happy Humphreys wiping her ass deal and all that feeding him and all this other stuff. Uh, it was just, uh, the stuff Hardy did and, and working he, Hardy could the, I, here's another thing I would tell you. And I think most people listening would, would agree that are familiar with the two guys that superstar Billy Graham and Nick Bockwinkle were, were both amazing talents, main event guys, world champions. But they had their games were entirely different. I'd say I'd say this, Conrad, very quickly that I think that that uh, superstar Billy Graham was Nolan Ryan. He threw nothing. He brought nothing but heat, strength, power, and heat. Nick Bockwinkle threw off-speed pitches, and both of them were amazing. But here's the the, the money on this story is both guys were made to look better than they actually were because they're working with Harley. And very few people, especially in today's wrestling world, have the ability to make whomever they work with 
better than they actually are. And Harley did that night after night after night. Can you imagine going to some of those little territory places, four, five hundred, six hundred people there? You got to wrestle the territory's fair-haired boy and make him look good. Who probably couldn't. Sometimes they couldn't lace their, shoot, couldn't tie their boots. He did all that. Lousy can. It wasn't all these big, nice arenas and and everything. It was a. It was a. It was a. It was a damn carnival, man. It's like being in vaudeville or something. It's going to be nothing less than the Super Bowl of professional wrestling, actually. Bob Backlund, the World Wrestling Federation champion, meeting the NWA champion, Harley Race. Harley Race, who meets the World Wrestling Federation champion in what is somewhat of a Super Bowl of pro wrestling in Madison Square Garden on Monday night, September the 22nd. Your comments, please, Mr. Race. It's going to be the epitome of wrestling today. I have been all over the world. I've been in Japan when Backlund was there. He did not want to meet me then, nor does he really want to meet me now. I had to come to his playground, to his backyard, to Madison Square Garden. And Backlund, it's going to be settled once and for all. I am the only world's heavyweight champion and I want to prove that to you most basically thank you very much Mr. Race who will meet Bob Backlund we'll find out who the true world heavyweight champion is in Madison Square Garden on the 22nd day of September let's keep it moving and, and tell everybody that this run with the NWA world title lasts more than two years. And he finally loses it October 21st, 1979 at dusty roads, but he wins it back five days later. And I guess we should mention that he would do this same routine a couple of months later in October in Japan, he would lose the world title to giant Baba with a running clothesline and then win it back a week later with a crossbody block from the top rope where Harley rolls through it and gets a pin and it's been said the rumor and innuendo the legend is that harley was paid twenty five thousand dollars cash directly from giant baba and he did this because he felt like well i'm losing it in japan and i'll win it back before i go back to the states so what's the harm and this way i'll get paid directly and i won't have to cut the nwa and this is pre-internet era but this was one of those famous stories where one of the boys cut a deal and giant Baba really wanted to say he was NWA champion. And he was for a week. Yeah. And, uh, Harley had made a lot of paydays. I'm assuming through Baba over the years. Uh, it was a payback. It was a, it was a, it was a, uh, uh, cash grab. If you want it, for lack of a better term, it wasn't the first time a champion, the NWA champion had gone to business for himself to make a, some extra, extra scratch. Uh, it happened before and, and, and it can't happen again. I don't think, but nonetheless, it had happened before. It wasn't new. So, uh, I, I know that caused a little bit of an uprising, a little pissing contest within the hierarchy of the NWA because they perceived it, that they are losing control. Right. And, and the one thing they had, and the, really the only thing they had going for them was the NWA title and, and making their monies by booking a champion, you know, 300 days a year, wherever there was the lights are turned on. And they didn't want to screw that up. So if they started feeling like they're losing control of the booking or the talent, it was not a good thing for them because that's, that was their only major asset. Let's talk about the uh, NWA world title flip-flopping. It wasn't done with Baba. They would do it again. September 4th, 1980, Baba would beat Harley five days later. You 
can probably predict Harley wins it back. And he did this in 81 with uh, one of the hottest young stars in the whole state of Georgia, Mr. Wildfire Tommy Rich. Oh, my God, Conrad. He's so sexy. Oh, my gosh. He, he, oh he loses it to Tommy Rich April 27th. He wins it uh, back on May 1st. Mr. Mr. Barnett orchestrated that deal. Well, tell the story. And there, was, and there was big money involved in that, too. Well, it was done to help the Georgia Territory. You know, like I said earlier, I mean, this is a passing comment, but Harley beating Dory in two out of three falls, where did that happen? In his territory. Right. And the big market in this Kansas City, Kansas, uh, is uh, Kansas Territory. And uh, they're in, in Kansas City, I'm trying to say. God almighty. So uh, that was the same deal here. Tommy Rich was a hot new thing. People couldn't get enough of him. He'd become a major star on TBS and he needed something else. Just a little something other than bleed every match and have those classics with Buzz Sawyer. Uh, and they did. So, you know, he gets a title for what? Five days or something. Yeah. Not long handful of days. Yeah. And he lost the title back in, in Atlanta, the big, the big market, the big town of the territory, the, 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 as Dusty said, the mother low bit it. And that's what it was. So, and I'm sure that Barnett put a little extra cheese on the, on Harley Swapper before he left town, uh, to do that favor. Cause here's the deal. Harley won, lost the title of Tommy rich in Gainesville, Georgia. And at the, I think the building's called the Georgia mountain center. It's, uh, it's where young, uh, AJ styles used to come to the rest of the matches when he was a kid. That's his hometown. It's just, it's, it's just a wide spot in the road in, in, in respect of the omnis of the world, the gardens and all that stuff. Right. But so, so Barnett hid Har, He convinced Harley, uh, you won't be losing in Atlanta. You're losing Gainesville. Tommy will have the championship for the weekend. We'll come back to Atlanta in the Omni, try to sell it out, make everybody pay day, work, be able to work some returns off of it, keep the thing going. And that'll be in Atlanta. So. There's a, you can look at all the, the, the strategy and how that was, uh, it's, it's kind of fascinating all the moving parts and how political they were. Let's, uh, talk about the next title, uh, switch. He's going to lose it to dusty roads in just about a month and change after this win back from Tommy Ridge. That one happens on June 21st. And, and then most famously, uh, he wins it from Ric Flair on June 10th, 1983. And that really sets up what's going to be a major moment in wrestling history. We're going to head towards Starcade, which is this new revolutionary idea. It's going to be on closed circuit. So you don't just have to be in the arena, but allegedly if you try to get to the arena that night, you couldn't, it was just miles and miles just backed up on the interstate where fans were trying to walk up and buy tickets. Allegedly thousands turned away at the door. And this promo and this, uh, program that Harley and Rick have, have built with each other is now for Rick to really be crowned and anointed as the champion. Harley has been a, a heritage champion for years and years. Rick had only been the champ for a cup of coffee, but there's such a great classic promo that we're going to play here on the show where Harley puts out a $25,000 bounty to anyone in the NWA who can take out flair. And of course, Bob Orton and Dick Slater would attack flair. It looks like it's going to be a career ending neck injury, but he's going to return at this Starcade, November 24th, 1983. It's in a steel cage match. 
And allegedly this is so big. And remember, this is November of 83. This predates WrestleMania. This is the first big time show. And, uh, according to the legend, dusty has the books to arcade is sort of his idea. Mm-hmm. And Vince, that's, that's true. Vince McMahon has an idea. He wants to put a stop to this because he feels like maybe somebody's got the jump on him with a good idea. So allegedly Vince calls Harley and asks him to come to Connecticut immediately. And he offers Harley a quarter million dollars to go to the WWF right then and there and not drop the title to Rick, but to bring it to the WWF with him. And allegedly Vince is trying to buy the NWA world title, destroy that company and their big event Starcade all at the same time. And Harley said during this meeting that he and Vince go into the restroom together and they're looking in the mirror and Harley asked Vince, what does he see in the mirror? And Vince said something like, I see both of us in the mirror. And Harley said he'd have to look at the person for the rest of his life. And we know that he winds up not taking the money. He does Starcade, does the honors for Rick. It's a big night for Rick. And, and that's one of the more famous moments in wrestling history. What did you hear? How did you hear it? And has this legend grown as time has gone on? I'm sure I heard it from Bill Watts because Watts has plugged into all that stuff, even though he wasn't a member of the Alliance, which further irked them. Uh, but he had great rapport with all the champions because they liked working for Bill and they'd work with Bill in other territories, you know, Florida, Atlanta, so forth. Uh, I just heard it was that Harley was basically offended that McMahon would essentially try to buy his character, not the TV characters, his personal character, his integrity. Harley had a, had an amazing reputation of being that JB books, that classic gunfighter that, that, that didn't make excuses and he kept his word. And I know that we obviously that the business has already laid out that what he was going to do. And he got to, to Greensboro, he's going to be, he's going to lose to Rick and anoint Rick as the next guy. And he'd given his word on that deal. And he'd invest all these years and miles and hospital stays, this and stitches, the blood and the guts and the beard, all that stuff, uh, you know, for years in the NWA, he wasn't going to do anything to slice it apart. And people said, well, why do you go to WW, uh, WWF later? Because it was later. It wasn't this time. It wasn't. And the motive was the Alliance was already was becoming a little bit, uh, splintered, said the least. And he went there to work, make a living. It's pretty simple. So I, I've heard a lot of stories, but it was Vince was used to getting his way. And he thought Harley had a price, and uh, unlike the character of the Million Dollar Man, Harley had no price for Vince on that day. I want to take a moment right now to talk to the gentleman who is seven times World Heavyweight Champion, the only man to hold that distinction in the entire history of the NWA, Harley Race. The entire being of wrestling the only human being and in baltimore i'll guarantee you mr flair that it's going to be number eight i don't care what i've got to do i don't care how far i've got to go or what it takes number eight is going to be harley races i am the ultimate thing in wrestling today I'm going to continue to be until I say that I'm ready not to be. Now, in order to prove that, I've got to get by one individual. Gordon, I don't mean to be out here hollering and shouting, but when I get to thinking about Ric Flair, that's the way it comes out. Flair, you're mine. 
guaranteed fact you're a beaten man the second you walk in the ring. You know it, I know it, and Baltimore is going to find it out. And a steel cage is going to spell the difference you feel. A steel cage is how he stole it, along with a left-handed referee that continually got in the way. That's how I'm taking it back. It'll be right inside this. It's the Night of Champions in Baltimore, Maryland at the Civic Center. On Thursday, October 11th, match time is 8 p.m. The World Heavyweight Wrestling Championship goes on the line. Ric Flair defending against seven times World Heavyweight Champion Harley Race. This match will be in a steel cage. The National Heavyweight Champion Ted DiBiase defends his title against Ronnie Garvin. And the National Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, will defend their titles against Dusty Rhodes and Ole Anderson. There will be a host of other matches October 11th in Baltimore. What a fascinating story. Um, we should mention that, uh, his, his runs with the world title are not done on March 20th, 84 in New Zealand, Harley would beat Rick for the world title three days later. Wouldn't you know it in Singapore, Rick wins the belt back from Harley. This is almost a, a custom. Like if it's an overseas flight and Harley's taking the belt, he ain't going to carry it in his bag every night. Yeah. And there was no, there's no, uh, there's no social media. The, the cloak of secrecy or, or trying to prevent news from getting out is, uh, doesn't happen. I mean, I, I it's amazing what you can find there, uh, on real time stuff, uh, that goes on in the wrestling business. There's just a very active fan base that have, t- have telephones and cameras, video recorders. So it was, it was just a different era. You could get away. Hey, you think anybody here in Oklahoma had a goddamn clue who was winning the title in New Zealand? No. I don't know if they could even spell New Zealand, some of them, but nonetheless, uh, the only thing I knew about New Zealand is a lot of sheep there. You gotta be careful, but Harley was, a Harley was, uh, just that kind of guy. He was a businessman, you know, Conrad, these guys were entrepreneurs. They weren't getting guaranteed contracts. They were having to go out and actually sell tickets to earn their pay. They weren't giving, a, they weren't being on, on scholarship here to where, you know, like, uh, some companies are paying exorbitant salaries to their talents who actually think that they're, they're because they're making so much money that they're actually over and they're selling tickets to merit to, to the, uh, pay. They're not in those days. These guys are all just like commission salespeople. You get a guarantee worked in here and there, but I would tell you that eight out of 10 events, they worked, they got what the, the, the commission was, or the percentage was outlined to be. So the more you sold, the more you made, you bombed that night, you, you didn't get paid well. And that's kind of how that worked. You know, it was just about the money and the percentages and a different mindset than this whole mindset today, not even close. We should mention that, uh, they thought that they were doing this title switch and nobody would find out about it. And Harley would say the NWA thing was kind of half-assed falling apart. And we wanted to draw the best thing we could in Singapore. Coming into Singapore with a new champion and giving the title back to Rick would be different than anyone expected, but nobody knew that Paul Bosch was going to be in Wellington. He ran right to, right to the telephone and called the guys on the NWA board. And by the time anybody got to us, the title was already switched back to Rick. So they all pretended it never happened. All right. And it's, uh, the relationship and the respect that Rick has given Harley over the years. I mean, well, his tweet, how about this? He, he wrote when, when Harley passed away, 
We lost not only a great personal friend, but in my estimation, the one and only real world champion without Harley race. There was no Ric Flair. I tried my hardest every day to live up to his standard in the ring. And you could ask anybody, Rick would, would talk your ear off that Harley's the toughest man he ever met. And I think he felt like he owed a lot of his career to Harley. Fair to say. Absolutely. When you have, when you have the, the most skilled player in the game, that's tenured globally respected and has the innate ability to make every match he's in better than it should have been to take average talents who are the local star of their territory and make them have the match of their lifetime because they're working with Harley race. Rick got that. He got to be around that. He got to be around greatness. It's like that. We told that story in Greensboro where Harley's vertical suplexes Andre, then he slams him all the same match. Uh, I remember Lawler, uh, uh, I think Lawler body slammed Andre one time and he got his ass chewed out or the, the office did about from the NWA that, well, you know, we're not, we're not going to be able to work with Jerry, you guys, if you don't, you can't do that. Well, you know, they're running their own territory. They're paying their own bills. And Hey, look, here's the thing about it. Conrad, if Andre did not want to be body slammed, you think he was forced into it? You think you just muscled him up and got him up there anyway, no matter if he didn't, he didn't want to go. Of course not. And Harley was not the kind of pro that would impose his will on somebody unless he believed it was really good for the match. And it was all about the match, not about him, about the match and, and getting the match over. So, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, uh, Harley's Harley's abilities were amazing. And Rick felt that. I, I want to be like this guy. Now I don't, he, he was not, he was going to have always had more sizzle, more pizzazz. Uh, but he his what he wanted to be like was Harley's reputation as a pro and what he did bell to bell with anybody that stepped in the ring with him. And that's what Rick wanted. Rick always wanted to be the best in the game. I think he did become the best in the game, but that's another story for another time. We'll do a Rick Flair show sometime. Hey, by the way, I, I told you, I don't know. I told you this off the air. I had a good conversation with Rick today and he's feeling great. By the way, folks are wondering, and he's agreed to write the forward to my next book. Oh, awesome. That's great. That's good news. Huh? Absolutely. I'm, I'm very ecstatic. I'm very happy. I really am. Let's talk about, uh, what's next for, um, Harley race. There's a famous story and, and we're going to get some help from a friend of ours, uh, where in July of 84, He's supposed to be wrestling Ric Flair at the Memorial hall in Kansas city and across town, the red hot world wrestling federation are running the bigger theater and it's nearly sold out at Harley show, but they're probably drawing a bigger crowd across town and Harley would go make a visit. And eventually Harley would decide, Hey, if you can't beat them, join them. And in may of 86, not long before the NWA meeting that they would hold every year, Harley announces that he's going to go to the world wrestling federation. And he comes in as handsome Harley race. Harley race is one of the biggest names in the history of professional wrestling. And I know when I talk to my dad about professional wrestling, he still thinks of Harley race as being the world champion from when he was a wrestling fan. He was the biggest name in professional wrestling, at least to my dad. But then in the eighties, of course, the business was changing quite a bit. And there were two new top guys, Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. 
Up next here in our tribute to Harley race, we've got a clip from the Ric Flair show. And back in 2015, I had the great pleasure of moderating a conversation with the immortal Hulk Hogan and the nature boy, Ric Flair, as they traded some tremendous stories about Harley race and the respect he carried in the business. Hey, so I, I want to hear you guys talk about a story that I heard you tell in private once, which was awesome, about uh, when the WWE or WWF at the time came to town. Uh, it was Harley Race's territory, and there, there's two shows going on that night. And, Rick, you're at one, oh, yeah. and you run into Harley, yeah. and I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, well, when we met, I went to Hulk and I talked about it. Some of you guys don't realize we're Hulk and I so Harley, so damn mad at WWE. At that time, WWF at that time, he, he's leaving me to wrestle Brody over, and we got three thousand people. He's going over to the convention center to kill Hulk. <laughs> oh God! And he goes, and we, we just, I, I, he pulls out his nine millimeter, touches his pants, and says, "I'll be back." Smokes your cigarette, throws it out. So Hulk, you were on the other side of the story. <laughs> what people don't understand is. He had been in Kansas City his whole life. He was the NWA champion, and that TV yeah. was piped into Kansas City. Holly Race is the champion. Holly Race is the champion. And he had his friends and neighbors. He had to respect the people in the airport and all around there. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, clowns from, from uh, uh, Connecticut, Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon, start piping in this TV that goes, Hulk Hogan's the WWF champion just out of nowhere. And then we follow up the service, service the market to come into the marketplace and wrestle. And Harley came down there and he tried to light the ring. He tried to light the ring on fire during the afternoon because ring crew said, <laughs> ring crew said he's already been here and tried to light the ring on fire. <laughs> so I went across the rough. And they all told me he was going to kill me. So I went across the street to the rusty scupper and drank two bottles of wine. And I just came sliding back over there right before the main event, hoping to miss him. And I was sitting on the floor doing number two, and I had my pants down. And Davy Boy Smith goes, "McDavid's here! Harley's here! Harley's here!" Davy Boy Smith started screaming. I pulled my pants up, didn't even, didn't even wipe my rear end, and blown out of the bathroom to find him. And he was standing there with that gun in his hand, going, I came here to blow your damn kneecaps off, but I'd rather work with you guys. He scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I scared the hell out of everybody. But I knew he'd already been there during the day trying to burn the ring down, so we shook hands. And I, I hooked him up with Vince, but boy, he scared me to death, man. Because I knew him before Tampa, when I used to follow the wrestlers around. When all these oh, guys yeah. come to Tampa to wrestle, I used to go to the Imperial Room over there on Armenia yeah. Avenue and follow them around after the matches. So yeah. I, I pretty much knew what Harley was all about. Well, the thing about Harley Race, which you have to love about it every day, I never took it like this. And certainly I wasn't considered anything like Harley Race being tough. But Harley Race really thought he was the world champion. <laughs> he he yeah. loved someone to give him some shit. He loved to get into a bar, and he'd rather go over to the pool table, knock every quarter off, and sitting there with 20 guys and say, hey, I got the winner, and start smoking a cigarette. He just couldn't avoid it. I'd go, Harley, Dean, let's have a drink and relax. You know, and I'd, oh, no. He'd be biting the beer taps off the bottles. You've seen that all, you know what I mean? Who can drink the, the beer the fastest? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'd go, Harley, let it go for a minute, man. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I got a quick Harley Race story for you. My first territory, when I went up and worked for the Fullers, we went outside to the ballpark in uh, Dothan, Alabama. And we went outside. Oh, yeah, you guys sold it out big time, right? Yeah, and so we're out there, and Harley Race tells me the hard way night, and I didn't know what he's talking about. Buck me up, and, you know, he, he yelled at me a couple of times, so 
I kind of like clipped him with the top of the forehead. You know how thick his forehead was? He's like a yeah, little man. So I kind of pulled his eyebrow down and tried to clip him with my knuckles to, to bust him open, and his eyes swole up. And he started cussing at me. And the next thing I know, he throws me out of the ring. And by the time I hit the floor, by the time I'm starting to pull myself up, he's already out and he grabs some ladies, one of those big, like, polar, not a polar camera, but a big one of those real cameras with a big long lens and he just smashes that thing in my face and both my eyes swole up and he goes, we're even. And he threw me back <laughs> in the ring. You know? But the, the, that, that night, I guess, Roy Lee Welch or somebody was screwing with the money from the box office and we all went to a hotel room and man, it got really nasty. And I was Don Curtis and uh, I guess they were accusing Don Curtis and Roy, Roy Welch of stealing and stuff and Harley Harley got really up in everybody's face. Ron and Robert Fuller were in the room. It was crazy. I got a good education that night. Harley Race got his money. Harley got his money. <laughs> Harley said at the time, no one was getting above Hulk. So they wanted something that would put Harley on the same level as Hulk without taking anything away from Hulk. So the King of Wrestling gimmick was born and he wins the King of the Ring tournament, which in those days happened to house shows and. After that, he was known as the King Harley race and he wore a crown and a robe and he was managed by Bobby Heenan. All right, wrestling fans at last this Monday night, Sullivan stadium in Foxborough, the steel cage match, the tag team championship and the second annual King of the ring tournament. Now tickets are still available at all Ticketron locations, strawberries in all day Monday at Sullivan stadium. And believe you me, what a night it's going to be. And certainly don't forget. That all-important challenge match, the living legend Bruno San Martino against Eddie Andelman's designated hitter. And remember, it's the King of the Ring tournament this Monday night. You're familiar with many, many of the first-round matchups. Pedro Morales against Ace Cowboy Bob Orton. Golden Boy Danny Spivey against Nikolai Volkov. Junkyard Dog against Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Billy Jack Hayes against the Iron Sheik. Of course, Mike Rotundo, Hercules Hernandez, the first round buys. And it will be Magnificent Morocco and Rowdy Roddy Piper going against one another. And the winner of that one to meet the winner of George the Animal Steel and Handsome Harley Race. Let me tell you something. I don't know how this all come about. Putting me in the ring with George the Animal Steel. They're talking about putting him... We should have been talking about putting him in something like this. But let me tell you this. I didn't come to the WWF to go down to George the Animal Steel, the absolute goof of professional wrestling. Now, Harley Race, you have been out here and telling myself, all the fans, that you are the legitimate king of wrestling. And what better way to back up your words than in the King of the Ring tournament? I'll show you all the way through the tournament from the bottom, through George the Animal Steel, through the winner of the uh, whatever the match is, Roddy Piper, Don Morocco, right on up through the list. It don't make a damn to me because I am the king. He had a pretty good run in the WWF, but I know a lot of hardcores probably didn't like the idea of him using a quote unquote gimmick. Were you shocked to hear that he was joining the world wrestling federation? And what did you think of the King presentation? I wasn't crazy about the King presentation for Harley. Uh, I thought it was a worn out kind of a gimmick. Uh, uh several, several other Kings, King Jerry Lawler, King Curtis, Ikea, 
you know, King Kong Bundy, a lot of kings, a lot of kings. Think about it. Too many of them. Uh, and I thought it was a little schoolish and kind of, eh. I don't, and again, as I talked to Harley about stuff like that over the years, I'm not so sure. I never heard him say he liked the money he made from time to time and the territories there was doing good. And look, folks, that's the only reason he went. It's a payday. These guys are not, it's not, there's not like it is today where the Indies and you got great organ, young organizations, fresh organizations like AEW on the scene that gives fans another a vehicle, another brand to enjoy. Uh, there weren't that many brands to enjoy. He, he was in a profession that he had a very great skill set, but not one that wasn't mass marketable. Uh, in today's world, he, could, he couldn't keep up with the booking. So he went there for the payday to pay his bills and uh, taxes and hospital bills and alimony or whatever the hell, you know, he's like any other human. So I, I, uh, I've heard that story about that. And I think, I think, uh, he was a, he, he was, he was a product of his, of his business. He got a booking when there were other bookings were not available. He had, he, he they're going to pay money. Well, he need the money to pay his bills like everybody else. Let me ask you though, you know, the, what we're talking about is whether or not him as the King was a rib and you know, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot about dusty roads and, and perhaps it was a well, rib hey, putting dusty it, in polka dots. And you think making Harley race, the quote unquote King of wrestling was more of the same. It, it just showed everybody involved in the process as a fan or as a talent or another talent or anybody else who the boss was that Vince could do anything he wanted to do because he's Vince McMahon. He had the most powerful weapon in wrestling, the eraser, the man size eraser, the most powerful weapon in wrestling it might be a t-shirt. Uh, so I think, uh, uh, it was a power thing, ego thing in my view, cause Harley remember before Harley went to New York. And they ran opposition in Kansas city, WWE did to try to hurt the houses of the incumbents. Hardy had his gun out and Hardy went to the, the arena, uh, before the WWE show that night and banished his gun. So I don't know that they were overzealous about booking that town again, going head to head, especially against Hardy's group, but he was very loyal man. And so. He kind of, he kind of got the upper hand that night. He bullied his way in. Of course, everybody, everybody in the building knew who Hardy raised. They didn't say anything about Hardy coming in, but they didn't know he had a gun on him. And he made his points clear and a very succinctly and very never, never raised his voice. I was told, you know, they will deal with this. This is my town. You're trying to steal money from my table. I shoot people that do that type deal. So. And so Vince got, he got over on Vince there. So you don't think that McMahon didn't keep score? Come sure. on. All right, stay tuned for more exciting World Wrestling Federation action just hours away. Down at the Boston Garden. Tonight is tonight. Phenomenal card. It's going to be Can-Am going up against Demolition. What a tag team bout that should be. George the Animal Steel to meet Dangerous Danny Davis. Coco Beware, one-on-one against the Honky Tonk Man. And in a return title defense. The heavyweight champion of the world tonight, Hulk Hogan, in a Texas death match, no holes barred, will be challenged by this man. Yes, it is a return. The King, Harley Wrestling, Sands manager Bobby Heenan. Heenan apparently not here this week. Harley? 
Right, the king, I'm sorry, your highness. You better keep it that way, Mr. Oakland. Because tonight in the Boston Gardens, you're going to see a man's career come to an end. A legend in a few short years is going to be extinguished. Mr. Hogan, I'm looking dead at you, I hope. And if I'm not, I'm looking at those morons that support you. Because in the Boston Gardens tonight, and let me say that one more time, tonight in the Boston Gardens, Hogan, is the end of your career, and you're damn well gonna bow at the feet of the king when I remove the belt. Well, I'll tell you what, don't, don't run away, your highness. But in all due respect, this guy has held the title under some pretty tough conditions for the past three and a half years. Not even Andre the Giant could upend Hulk Hogan. I'm not Andre the Giant, and I've held more titles than Hulk Hogan will ever hold the longest day of his life. That's why I wear the crown. And in the Boston Gardens tonight, I'll wear the gold. All right, we're going to find out just hours away. Hulk Hogan to meet Harley Race Texas Death Match. Don't miss it. So he has, a, you know, he works WrestleMania three against junkyard dog. That was probably a big payday. And he's yep. having a match with uh, Randy Savage and he puts Randy on a table and tells him to move and Harley dives at Randy and Randy goes through the table and Vince sees it or Harley goes through the table rather, but Vince sees this and he says he wants him to do that same spot with Hulk, but this time do it on the big stage, do it on NBC Saturday night's main event. So Harley goes to put. Hulk on a table, gets on the ring apron, dives at Hulk, Hulk moves and Harley smacks the table. This is way before ECW and Sabu folks. This is a long time ago, but as a result, this table was not gimmicked and it seriously injures Harley to the point that the metal edge of the table goes into his abdomen, causes a hernia fast Mm. forward. He's at home watching an NCAA basketball tournament game. He starts to have this horrendous cramp in his stomach and it, believe it or not, it's so bad. He loses consciousness. When he wakes up, he goes to the hospital and shortly after arriving, he blacks out again. And this time when he wakes up, he's got a colostomy bag hooked up to him. He's got these, uh, inflamed and ruptured membranes that sort of line the inside of his abdomen, all of his internal organs. And as a result of this being punctured now. He's got a bacterial infection. He's, he's toxic. He's septic. And this is a coin flip at this point when you have that much bacteria in your blood as to whether or not you'll make it. So mm-hmm. he's stuck. With I've, this. I've been there, Conrad. Exactly. When my, my large intestine perforated, which caused the removal of 13 inches of it, it's same thing. Now I didn't, it didn't happen to me that way. It was just a bad DNA, but I understand where you're, where you're, where you're coming from. The longer you leave it and the more of the, the feces gets in your system, the less chance you had to live. And that's actually what put Rick down for the count a few years ago as well. He had a, a bowel situation and, uh, he was down for the count and, and we're lucky to still have him and, and hardly had this happen again here. And the doctor tells him, Hey, you're going to have to wear this colostomy bag for a year. And as you could expect that lasts about three months with Harley. And he goes back to the doctor and says, take it off. If I die, I die. And if I don't, then all better, but either way, I'm rid of this thing. Fast forward six months and he's itching to return to the ring. So against the doctor's orders, he's back wrestling and a lot of the doctors wouldn't clear him. And allegedly, uh, Vince finds workaround, sends him to Paris where he can still work with Andre the giant and Hulk Hogan. And he winds up leaving the company 
1989. And, uh, if you were in charge of the WWF and you could sort of fantasy book Harley, would you have found another role for him? It feels like, you know, he's, he being Vince McMahon is still finding spots for guys. Was there something else that Harley could have done and been a contributor or was it time for him to just move on? And as you would say, learn a new hold. Uh, I think that Harley would have been hard pressed, uh, unless the pay was, uh, uh, you know, competitive as a producer, agent, coach, whatever you want to call him, uh, he could have done that really well because he was, he was a great teacher. He had patience. He didn't yell and scream. He didn't curse you out like a, like a you know, dog cuss you. Uh, he could, and he has, but he, that, wasn't his, that wasn't his normal MO. I just think he was a lot like, uh, it's a lot like Randy Savage when he left WWE. He didn't want to be a television announcer. He thought he had another run or two left in him, and Vince did not concur. Therefore, Randy left to go back to WC, go to WCW because they were going to put him in a featured program, main event level, as they should, and for as long as they could get out of it. But he helped them a lot going down there. So the same thing with Harley. I just think that he felt like I still got game left, and looking how the how the his peers around him were changing their style, taking more shortcuts, uh, doing more flying things instead of wrestling. Uh, that he believed that he could still contribute. I don't disagree with that, quite frankly, but he could do something. Uh, and of course, the WWE had a habit of making uh, older wrestlers managers. Albano was one, you know, he, all these guys, there's a ton of them over the years. Uh, and, but I, I think that uh, Harley was just, still had the itch to do something. And uh, so he left WWE and WWF, whatever it was at the time. And, uh, and helped, uh, he came to Atlanta in 89 and we had a hell of a year and Harley was a, was a significant part of it. He added a lot to our show, credibility, name, identity. He filled a great void. He babysat the big van Vader and managed Leon, helped Leon become a better heel. He had great, uh, he, he did great things for us that would probably never be written of in that context, but to tell you, you're behind the scenes and you hear his influence on these guys that were there at that time. Uh, there's not one man that can tell you the Harley race didn't help him. You know, what's great about this podcast and really just professional wrestling in general is the way these stories through professional wrestling are told and retold and they become part of wrestling legend and almost the folklore of wrestling. And it feels like they get bigger with every retelling. So up next, I want us to revisit one of those stories. And this one I heard indirectly from famous belt maker, Reggie parks, of course, Reggie used to be a professional wrestler himself, but after he retired from in-ring competition, he made many of those classic championship belt designs that we all love so much in the eighties. And he told this story to his protege and I wanted uh, his protege, Dave Milliken, who is now a belt maker for AEW and WWE and he's done stuff with UFC and everywhere else to tell a classic Harley story, which really just personifies how badass Harley race was. Hey guys, thanks for having me on to uh, share this memory of Harley. And um, uh, as you said, it came from from Reggie Parks years ago. And the story goes that um, Harley and his wife at the time were in a restaurant eating dinner, and um, somebody comes in to rob the place. So you got somebody that goes up to actually you know take money from the cash register, and then you got somebody else that's running around that's taking wallets and purses, and they are going around and they're you know gathering gathering these up, and they get to Harley's table. And it's the same drill. Give me the wallet. Give me the purse. And Harley just no sells it. And, 
keeps eating and um, you know I guess his wife's feeling rather secure because she's with the baddest man on God's green earth so uh, they just don't do anything and so the guy says I'm serious give me the wallet give me the purse now and nobody gets hurt and Harley by this point is annoyed so he looks up locks eyes with the guy and says fuck off and um, that's what the guy decided to do after he sized Harley up and, and uh, thought about it and obviously uh, ended up leaving there without the belongings of Mr. and Mrs. Race. And um, so, you know, that of all the Harley stories, to me, that's, that's just the one that sums up the baddest man on God's green earth. Uh, thanks for having me on to tell this, guys. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Dave, for taking time out of your day to uh, celebrate the life and legacy and memory of the great Harley race. Yeah, I guess we should mention he does come back and he returns at the great American bash in 1990, which we recently covered. He would beat his former rival, Tommy rich, and he starts wrestling on house shows, filling in for Ric Flair in several tag team matches where he teamed with Barry Windham against Lex Luger and sting. He's going to wrestle Tommy rich through the summer and a couple of times against Brian Pillman in September. He would wrestle for the United States title against Lex and then he would renew his rivalry the following month in October against junkyard dog on the house show loop. And he finishes the year against Michael wall street. And, uh, he suffers a pretty nasty shoulder injury in Missouri on December 7th of 1990. And not long after he retires as a wrestler and, uh, we see him pop back up at the great American bash 1991. And this is where he's going to return as Lex Luger's manager slash advisor. When Lex would go on to defeat Barry Windham to win the first world championship in Lex Luger's trophy case. And of course that is the famous show that Ric Flair was not there for kind of a, a no win situation for Luger and Windham and, uh, Rick was uh, not there and Harley was, what do you think, uh, Harley thought about being the manager of the second for Lex Luger payday. I think it's, he, he realized the writing was on the wall. Conrad is, is bumping, taking that upside down bump and suplexing people. And all these things he did so brilliantly were over his body was starting to break down. And again, we've already talked about these car wrecks. He's had, these are not just fender benders folks. These are not just, you know, endless chaser things. These are life and death car wrecks. And it, and it did cause death you know, as we talked about his first wife. So I, I I think he saw the handwriting on the wall that his mortality was real. And even Hardy race couldn't, uh, fight off father time. Father time's always going to win. He didn't father time doesn't do any jobs. Remember that. And so I thought he, uh, was ready for the transition. He, you know, he come to TV, he sat back and he always was dressed nice. He spoke in his Marlboros and always a fountain of information. If you wanted to know now, he's not going to look you up and come seek you out to give you advice. But if you have the time, if you're motivated to be proactive, he'll give you all the time in the world. But that's just old school in him. He, if he saw something that wasn't good, he really wasn't the kind of guy that's going to call you out. Uh, unless it just happened to be convenient as far as geography. You're in the same spot he is when he saw it type thing. But he was just not that kind of guy. But if you came to him and asked him, Hardy, did you see my match? Or Hardy, would you watch my match? Uh, he did that willingly and, and did a nice job with it. So. Uh, Harley was a lot, a lot more valuable than hey, no, none, none of us want to think that our, that we can't do our job anymore. Right. Uh, I've battled myself, my battle with that myself and, and thank God for Tony Khan. He believed I could, and I can, and I will. 
but Harley was in a situation with a different job description, but he goes damn good talker. Uh, he was menacing. He had, the, but here's the thing, man, he had great name identity. Everybody knew who the hell Harley race was. And they didn't know Harley race as a jabroni. They knew Harley race as an eight time NWA champion. So, uh, and his reputation preceded himself. It's just, you know, he was, he was great in that role. So he helped us a lot. And, and we had, a, and quite frankly, go back and look at 89 WCW. We had a hell of a year there that year. We had some of the greatest matches in the history of that company. The three with Flair and Steamboat come to mind, for example. So, uh, Hardy was a big part of that deal. And, but he's like all of us, man, I can do it. I can still do this. And until we prove to ourselves that we're bullshitting ourselves, we want to try. And that shoulder injury in, uh, in his nearest hometown to work with Mike Rotunda, Michael wall street, uh, was just, uh, th that was the end. That was it. He didn't realize I can't do this anymore. A few weeks ago, Harley race was supposed to appear at a convention in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I think most people know that he didn't wind up making that appearance and wound up being hospitalized in Atlanta, Georgia. And I got an update from Rick Flair telling me that uh, Harley wasn't doing so great. And we gave that update here on a few of my podcasts and asked everyone for their, their prayers and to let Harley know that you were pulling for him. And of course we know that ultimately we lost him, but in the wake of losing him, a former WWE superstar took to Facebook to tell a story that I think surprised a lot of people. Uh, I saw that story and thought it was worth having him on the show to share that story, a little bright spot in wrestling when. It feels like all we ever hear about is the negative. Here's a feel good story from Trevor Murdoch. All right, man. Um, you know, I, with Harley, you know, I've been around him for the last 20 years. There hasn't really been a part of my life that he wasn't a part of. And, uh, so when he, when I found out that he was sick and was stuck in Atlanta, I, you know, I was keeping updates with, with Leland, uh, and getting the information, just, just checking on him. And uh, Leland had given me a call and said that Harley wasn't doing doing that well um, and that he needed to come home. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. And uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Harley starts feeling better, and they're talking about him being in rehab for a month in Atlanta and him not being happy about it. And the next day, I get another phone call saying that Harley had, kind of went downhill and uh, they weren't sure if he was going to recover and they wanted to bring him home and they couldn't find a hospital for a while. Um, but they were able to, they finally found a hospital, but the problem was they couldn't, they couldn't take him by ambulance. They couldn't, they couldn't drive him there. Um, he had to be, he had to be from there and Medicare wouldn't cover it. Um, so, I get a phone call out of nowhere thinking that he's going to be stuck in Atlanta. And I don't know where I get a call saying we're, we're coming home with Harley. We're flying home. Um, and, and I'm, I'm just happy that they're coming home and I get a call stating they made it home and I need to come up there and, 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 and see Harley that, uh, he's, he's probably not going to make it the next 48 hours. And I'm up there in the hospital and all of us guys are in the room. We're telling Harley stories, guys that had been with Harley since the first day he opened up the training center since 1999. And, and we're just remembering him and, and talking to him. And, um, 
I step outside with out of the hospital room with one of the guys, and I ask him, you know, I go, how did you guys get Harley home? The last the last I'd heard, you guys told me Medicare wouldn't cover it. And I was told that a call was made to WWE, and within 10 minutes, they called back and said that the flight was taken care of, don't worry about it, and gave him a date and time, when, or, you know, a time to come pick him up and to get him home. And it just blew my mind that I didn't, just out of the kindness of their heart, they, 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 they didn't think about it. There wasn't a, I don't know. It was just take care of Harley and get him home. And if it wasn't for that, he'd have been stuck in Atlanta and I wouldn't be able to, I just wouldn't have been able to have been there with him. And I was just very, very proud and thankful that Vince from WWE stepped up to do something they didn't have to do that they gave me, you know, they gave me two more days with Harley. Um, I mean, the man was, the man held my children before my parents did. It was at my wedding. And uh, I was just extremely thankful for that because he means a lot to me. And, and I thought people should know that the good things, it's not always bad. Everybody likes to bash in the WWE and, and give their opinions, and that's great. But they need to know what kind of things they do and they don't ask for credit for. They just do it to take care of their guys. They were there for Harley. Well, and Trevor, we know that, Harley is glad that you were there for him at the end. It's clear and you can hear it in your voice, how much Harley meant to you and your family. And I'm glad that Harley was able to be with his friends and family there at the end and kudos to WWE and and Vince McMahon for making that happen. Well, and, and he did a great job managing Lex because he said that Lex would listen to him really wanted to learn and he wanted to take himself to a level he hadn't been at before. And he respected what Harley race had done. And obviously the way all the other boys sort of handled him and maybe not the most fun transitioning from that to Vader. Uh, He says that him and Vader had several exchanges that weren't (laughs) always positive. And, uh, one, they, they totally destroyed a hotel room, but Vader is, is, has always spoke very highly of Harley and very appreciative for what they did together. And I, I thought Harley really added a lot to Vader's presentation. Wouldn't you agree? Me, oh, hell yeah, absolutely. It gave, it gave Leon a different dimension. It gave the opportunity for Leon's side, meaning Leon and Harley, the chance to cheat, to get a little extra heat. In other words, Harley could do things or distract the referee very easily. Get on the apron, seen hard to do that many times. Hop on the apron, just like he was a 20 year old kid, and draw the referee over. And while the referee was dealing with Harley on the apron, Leon would cheat and get heat. You, you know, the heels are a 400 pound heel can't beg and squirm very easily. You got to figure out different ways to set up the match. And being a chicken shit heel at 400 pounds ain't going to fit the bill. Harley knew that, and he always, Harley always thought Harley gave Leon great advice great coaching and he cared about Leon because at the end of the day, the old school to me says the more over Leon gets, the more money he's going to make. And if, if Leon's making money in his role facilitated by Harley, then Harley's going to make money. It comes back to CC cash and creative, but Harley was a big asset there. And I thought was a, a really viable part of, uh, the success that Vader had there in WCW. 
Well, Harley Race, as a seven times heavyweight champion of the world, you've wrestled every great athlete uh, in this sport, and you've defeated them. Who in your career would compare to this man? Mr. Ross, there is not a man, there's not a man ever been in wrestling or is going to be that I can see that compares to this man right here. He is the ultimate athlete today. 450 pounds, six foot five. The most natural athlete that I've ever had the pleasure of being around or being associated with, and thank God I never had to wrestle him. This is the ultimate athlete. I know that the chair that Sting hit you with did not phase you, his Stinger Splash did not phase you. I'm not so sure that he could even apply the Scorpion Deathlock. But I do know you have a statement to make to the world's champion. Mr. Announcer, Vader fears no man. And the world has just seen Vader feels no pain. Sting, the first time I hurt you in the ring was for free. Next time, you have to pay Vader. And you have to pay him with a lot. The world heavyweight championship, Sting, that's what the price is. Ladies and gentlemen, the contracts have been signed for the heavyweight championship of the world at 450 pounds. He will outweigh the champion some 200 pounds. Again, I repeat, how can Sting overcome those odds? The main event continues after this. One of the creative things that was discussed allegedly is that, uh, Steve Austin was going to be next to be mentored by Harley race. And dusty Rhodes told him that that's what he had penciled in for him next. And that he would be challenging and become the United States champion with Harley's tutelage. And of course we know Steve would go on to win that, but without Harley, because instead they became the Hollywood blondes. You're good friends with Steve. Do you think Steve was disappointed? He didn't get to work with Harley on a more regular basis. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Steve's a historian. Steve's an old soul. He loves wrestling. I heard him on busted open, uh, this week. Uh, and I'm a, kind of hooked to that show. I, I love it. You know, I, I watch, I listen every day just about, and when I'm home, I do, or I'm around my radio or I can, I do. Uh, and Steve was a studio guest there, did a great job with, uh, Dave LaGreca and Bubba Dudley. And, uh, he, he talked a little bit about that, but Steve's a historian. He's an old soul. One of the, one of the best stories that Steve ever told me, uh, he shared a little bit of it today on, on busted or this week on busted open was the fact that. You know, riding in the back seat of that big Cadillac with Harley driving like he's AJ Foyt or, or Dale Jr. or Senior or whatever. Uh, Leon rode shotgun, passed the beer, and uh, over here, uh, I'm uh, uh, Steve's in the back seat listening, soaking up information. He loved that environment. He loved those opportunities. So to have a more one on one relationship to, to the point of actually traveling with Harley Race. For a guy with Steve's ability and his mindset, and his goals, perfect, absolutely perfect. And so, uh, I think that was a, if, you know, Steve, you wouldn't ask him probably one of his big disappointments in his career that the deal with Harley and himself in WCW did not come full circle. We should mention that, uh, believe it or not, Harley has more matches in 1993 uh, he's going to actually step in and substitute for an injured Vader to face flair. Uh, I think these go down on the 26th, 27th and 28th, uh, when they're in Davie, Florida, Orlando, Florida, and Jacksonville, Florida. And then unfortunately in 1995, Harley is involved in a, a pretty horrific boating accident. It forces him out of wrestling 
all together for a while. He's got to have hip replacement surgery, which along with, um, other injuries that have accumulated over the years, even prevents him from being a manager. And you've sort of mentioned, you know, at the top of the show that Harley was a speed demon, whether it was, you know, the various car crashes or this boat crash, uh, he, he knew, he knew one speed and that was wide open. Adrenaline junkie, an adrenaline junkie a kid that grows up, doesn't get a high school diploma, has nothing. He's wiping a, a, the ass of a morbidly obese human being. That's always hungry and whining. He pays his dues. And so when he started making money, he could have better things and faster cars and faster boats. He took advantage of it. I think he always felt like a little bit because he dodged so many bullets that he might be living on bar time anyway. Uh, luckily that did not come to fruition and Harley got to live a nice long. I think, I think Harley was 76 when he passed away. I used to like Hart Conrad at my age right now. I, when I was younger, I would say, man, I'll take 76 any day. Not so much right now. <laughs> Let's reevaluate those numbers. But that's the thing about, I think he had a, I think he kind of knew. He kind of knew that he he dodged so many bullets. It was inevitable that something was going to happen. That boat, then that boat accident was horrific. How he survived that son of a bitch. I'll never know. I really don't. Somebody says, well, you think Hardy will go to heaven? I said, well, if you believe in heaven and hell, I think he'll go to heaven because the good Lord had plenty of chances to take him all, all along. He just waited and he waited. He's saving it. And, and, uh, the effect of that was that many of us got to know Hardy longer. And that was a blessing in our lives. Of course, we talked about Harley race being the king of wrestling. And maybe that was a rib, but what wasn't a rib is that Harley race was wrestling royalty. Let's go to great friend of the show and my co-host on 83 weeks, Mr. Eric Bischoff to tell a story about his memories of the respect that Harley race carried in wrestling. You know, like so many legends, um, that many of us have grown up watching and then very few of us have been fortunate enough to work with Harley race stands out for a lot of different reasons. One in particular though, um, it was the level of respect that I think Harley race commanded when he walked into a room and it was respect on a couple different levels. Obviously his legacy as one of the industry's tough guys was probably the catalyst for a lot of that respect. But it went beyond that. And my first exposure to it was really like so many things in the AWA. Uh, when I first really started in the backstage part of the business, you know, when I, when I first got into the AWA, I was, in, I was in the office. I wasn't really anywhere near the backstage area. So I didn't see what went on be, behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, when that changed and I was finally you know, involved in production, certainly I got to see much more about the industry uh, than I previously had. And one of the things that I remember the most was going into an arena in Rochester, Minnesota, where the AWA was producing their show for ESPN at the time. And there was a lot of laughing and joking and typical, you know, pre-show banter that went on in the locker room at that time. And it was, I, I won't, I won't call it kind of a frat house environment, but it, it may have been close. And I specifically remember, you know, I wasn't a part of that. Certainly I was young. I was new to the business. I was still kind of a, an outsider and, and green as it could be on top of that. 
but I remember when Harley Race arrived at the arena and, and walked backstage into the room, it got quiet. And it got quiet in a way that was obvious to me, even at that time, without really knowing Harley or his history. It, it was obvious to me that Harley Race commanded respect. It wasn't that everybody in the locker room was fearful of, of Harley because he didn't carry himself that way, but he was one of those rare individuals who, even if you didn't know him, when he walked into the room, he commanded your attention and he commanded your respect. And I, I think that's one of the things, to me at least, that I'll always remember about Harley initially. And of course, later on in WCW, I had the opportunity to work with Harley when he managed um, Big Van Vader. And Big Van Vader could be volatile. He could be a handful. He, he like, you know, sometimes talent are when they reach the top of the, the food chain. Uh, they can be a little temperamental, and, and, and Van Vader was no different than that. But Harley was always the voice of reason with Big Van Vader, and I think it was for that very same reason. I'm not going to suggest that Leon White, a.k.a. Big Van Vader, was afraid of Harley physically, but I'm not going to suggest he wasn't either. In either case, you know, Harley Race was really the one calming um, – Tool in the toolbox when it came to um, managing uh, Big Van Vader, and, and again, it was all about respect. And, and we should mention that he got to affect a lot of other people, and he got to be in their lives a lot longer because 20 years ago he started WLW, the World League Wrestling Promotion. He ran shows mostly right there in Missouri, and about a year after that, so 19 years ago or so, he starts the Harley Race Wrestling Academy, where he's going to train folks to become professional wrestlers and they've had quite a few talent come through those doors over the years. Yeah. Well, great hands-on and, uh, hands-on treatment. Uh, how do you get a better coach than that? Right. Really? I mean, how do you, get, it's like saying, you think Michael Jordan can teach you any fundamentals of basketball? I think he can. Well, he hadn't played a long time. I think he can trust me on that one. So that was Hardy's deal. He was just, he was so gifted, creatively gifted. He had a great foundation for life as far as, uh, how he worked his bookings and his travel and, and all these things that you would think a guy with no education whatsoever and didn't know how to operate a computer at that time whatsoever, uh, how he made it. And he did because he found a way he always Harley race, always found a way. And that's one of the great things we can learn from the Harley race story, folks. If you want it badly enough, no matter what it is, if it is your girlfriend, your, your significant other, whatever the hell it is, your, your job you're looking for, it is possible. It is possible if you just don't give up. And as Dusty told me that time, you turn your jersey in, kid, you're off the team. Harley never wanted to turn his jersey in. Harley didn't want to end up just doing card shows and then finally got relegated to a wheelchair. I'm sure you know he didn't want that. But he would not, I'm sure if you ask him right now, if you get a a direct line to him up there, he would say, I wouldn't change the damn thing. Well, I I can't say that we can end the show on a better note than that, but I feel the obligation of our listeners to let them participate. We, we asked you guys to ask some questions and we're certainly going to hit that now, but before we do, I do want to ask, you know, he, he's obviously a hall of famer goes in the hall of fame 15 years ago. 
What do you think his legacy is going to be in professional wrestling when all is said and done? Oh man, it'll all be good. I mean, it's just your, how you wake up that morning, I guess. And so if you ask or ask that question, I look at him as a, uh, uh, a brand. He, he built, he built, he helped build the NWA brand. He was a, an, he was amazing representative globally to what pro wrestling should be because he was a wrestler first. I found it funny. I read on online where Carl Gotch, uh, said Harley race was a spot monkey, but anything above an overhand wrist lock or a double wrist lock or something, uh, Carl probably would think was a little bit weak because he was really stiff. He was really a, you know, unique cat. Uh, but he, he's a guy that went from a no high school education, man. Think about that. Nowadays, he became the best in the world at his craft without a formal education. He became the best in the world at a very unique craft through his God given abilities and his will to survive and to become the best ever. He did both. He did all those things. And it just, again, tells you that if you really want something badly enough, it can happen. You know, but you can't make excuses. He didn't make any excuses. He wasn't worried. Just like the deal with his colostomy bag. You're taking the son of a bitch out and off or, or I'll get somebody else to type deal. And he would have found a doctor in Kansas city to do it. He was beloved there and he wanted to live a more freer life. A man's man didn't want to carry around a colostomy bag. I know you have to sometimes I'll get that. Doesn't make you less of a man, but for some people they can't handle it. And Harley races that was one of those guys. And so how the, all the shit he in, endured and the, and all the surgeries, good God almighty. And I never saw Harley change his expression. He may have, the, he may have been, maybe he missed his calling as a poker, as a poker professional. I don't know. He loved to play pool. I wrote this tweet that if he goes to heaven, he, he says, I got next to the pool table. You better let him have it. Cause Rick will tell you and all, all kinds of, this is a Harley's favorite deal. He'd walk into a bar, beer joint, pool table, quarters line on the table. Who's got next, 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 so forth. One pool table in the bar. He'd walk up, take that big left hand, swipe all the money off the pool table. He'd go everywhere. And he said, and then he'd put his quarter on there. And then, then his quarter would be the only one on the table. And he'd look around at all these guys who are looking at him like they didn't know what the hell to do. And he'd say, I've got next. I've got next. And nobody said shit because he wanted to fight him. He wanted somebody to challenge, uh, his, uh, uh, alpha maleism, but very seldom that happened. And the other thing he had, you know, he Hardy had one of the great knockout punches of all time. They talk about guys, you know, Marciano had a great punch. You know, one, he was 49 and I was a boxer, all those, all those knockouts, 40 something, but Hardy, Hardy's punching power from guys that I know that were boxing people said he was a freak of nature with his damn punching power. And, and you, you can watch him. You can't, I don't, where'd you get that power? Is his legs? Is his shoulders? He got big, you know, forearms. What is it? I don't know what it is. He's a lot like Danny Hodge in the sense that he's a freak of nature, but, but doesn't look like one, but that's his, his reputation. He's, he, he represented so proudly, he helped a lot. So many people always had time to help people. I remember the, the, the coolest story I had with Harley. Uh, we'll answer these questions because we're going to disrespect our people. He, he had a spot show 
in a suburb of Tulsa about 10 years ago, I'm thinking. And he brought his little crew down to the, some, uh, junior high gym or something like that in sand Springs and wanted me to come over. And I came over from Norman. It was about two hour drive. And I did a, uh, welcome and I did a meet and greet and I signed some autographs and, and so forth. And at the end of the night, uh, they had a decent little crowd, not they go, you know, buy all the Christmas presents, but this decent little crowd. And he says, uh, you know, let's go in here and I'll pay you. I've got your payoff. I said, oh, no, no, Hardy, I ain't, I ain't taking your money. But you worked. I know. And I enjoyed every damn minute of it. I got to see you. I smoked a cigarette with you again. <laughs> so I'm not taking your money. Well, at least let me pay for your gas. <laughs> I said, no, I'm good, man. I really, I filled up before I got here. <laughs> so he, he, he was, he wasn't offended. I handle it very, very carefully, Conrad, because old school guys like that, you can't really tell, but I respectfully declined his pay because it just, it, I think it was going to pay me 500 bucks or something. And, uh, so it just went 500, went back into the kitty and for his people and himself. So that was, a, he always remembered that. He, and he tells you that he told me that a lot. You know, I'll never forget what you're doing that. You know, we talked a little earlier today about maybe some issues with the Funks and the Briscoes and how Harley was maybe the monkey in the middle in that whole mess for the NWA world title. So I thought we needed to talk about where Harley maybe stacked up as the NWA world champion and who better to do that than somebody who had firsthand knowledge, one of the Briscoe brothers himself, ladies and gentlemen, joining us now to talk about Harley race and where he was in the pecking order hall of famer, Mr. Jerry Briscoe. I uh, Harley race, uh, you know, everybody looks at Harley race and, and said, that's gotta be the toughest man in the world. And, uh, the way he delivered his promos, uh, were, were right to the point. Look, look, in the eye through that television screen and, and his work in the ring was, uh, was just dynamic and, and, uh, and, and it wasn't stiff, but it was so solid that you know, that you could say it was stiff, but that was Harley and you got used to it and because Harley was in control and Harley, Harley wouldn't hurt you in the rings. Uh, Harley, Harley was a great professional, but you know, most, most of the fans and most of, even most of the wrestlers, uh, live with the perception of Harley being, uh, tough and being the meanest man in the world and toughest man in the world, just, just by his, his work and, and his promo skills, which it was a, an asset for any professional wrestler to have. And that's what Harley was. Harley was a professional wrestler. He wasn't a showman. He was a professional wrestler. Old school to me, the last of the greats. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I put, uh, Harley Dory and Jack and early Terry in the, in the greats. And, and to me, a lot of the other ones were just run the champions as it was the NWA, you know, uh, Oh, we need this guy to get over in our territory. Okay, well, we'll bring somebody in. We'll put him on. He can be world champion. Get him over. So they were kind of rented champions. But the real workhorses of, 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 of this business was, was uh, Dory, Jack, and Harley. And and uh, and uh, they they were my three favorites. And of course, I, I love Lou because I came along just at the time Lou was winding down. And Gene Kaneski, Gene was a big brutal guy that was just a big monster and 
I don't think he was that great of a, of a champion in ring champion where he was, you know, could have matches with anybody because Gene was because of Gene's size, but Hardy, Jack and Dory, they all had the size, but they had the skill to, to get on the, the skill to get on the, on the, um, in, in that squared circle and, and, and have a match with anybody. And that, that's what separated these three guys, in my opinion, to, uh, to uh, all the other champions that come along after and, and before them. They, they were able to have different matches with different people every night or have different matches with the same person every, uh, every night as Jack and Harley and Jack and Dory uh, had all the time. They do an hour of Broadway, and it was a different hour of Broadway where some of these guys, you know, had their routine. You had to take the face bump. You had to take the bump off the top rope. I mean, all that stuff, you know. Were were these guys? They they were meant on stories that were the people were buying at night. So as far as credibility in the ring, Hardy Hardy has so much credibility with me. But Hardy Hardy had 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 that skill, like I said, to convince people that he was the toughest SOB on the face of the earth. And also, uh, he not only convinced the people, but he convinced he he convinced the guys he was working with. All Hardy had to do to you to freeze would give me give you that stare or i saw harley give that stare across the ring and it it did it, scare it did make you want to go back and change your tie to scare you so bad so harley had that ability to intimidate people so you know all the people all the fans and and, and a lot of the modern day talent oh harley race was the toughest some best that ever walked the face of the earth but all it was is through Hardy's ability to convince them in the ring and in promos, which, which like I said, are, is a great asset. But I saw it in live person, live and in color and in person. And, and Tar- Harley Race was one of the toughest guys that ever walked. But he was one of the most compassionate, one of the best friends that you could ever have to it in your life. And R.I.P. Harley Race, give my brother Jack a big hug up there when you see him. Wow. Thanks for taking the time today to uh, catch up with us and celebrate uh, one of the all-time greats. One of the top threes, you said, one of the last real world champions. And it is kind of cool to know that somewhere right now, Jack and Harley are maybe going two out of three falls. Tell us uh, about the famous story of uh, Owen Hart. Allegedly back in the day, a lot of the guys, whenever they were in Harley's territory, uh, when they're working with the WWF, they would come by and visit with Harley and he and his wife would make a bunch of barbecue and Harley had this famous spaghetti. And the legend goes that Owen dumped a bunch of hot sauce into this chili and it was unbearably hot to the point that it's really not even fit for consumption anymore. And once Harley realized it was a rib, he showed up at Monday night raw. And when he greeted Owen, he tasered him. Yeah. That was his favorite gimmick, the taser. The 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 most scared, or they say in Oklahoma sometimes, probably in Alabama too, scared. The most scared I ever saw anybody was Harley with that goddamn taser chasing Teddy Long. Harley loved Teddy Long. And what's not to love? Oh, Theodore. And uh, but I think he had a switch in that damn thing to where it would shock you. But it also could be a, just flip a switch, or it just made the noise of being shocked. You know what I'm saying there? Yeah. yeah. Cl- you know, sc- scary noise. So he get behind Teddy. 
not even have the the elect the juice on, and make the noise of the uh, of the of the taser behind Teddy's ear. You never seen a man run so fast, move so fast. Uh, I Teddy literally thought he was going, he's dying. <laughs> and uh, he and he would do that. And when, when we, that was one of the great parts of it having Harley around. He always he, he made things. Guys were just happy to see him. He did shit like that to just, you know, honoriness. But he still was that, uh, that loving guy, that that over that big kid that just never quite grew up. And he loved the speed. As we talked about the cars, the boats, you know, uh, his side deals, his entrepreneurship. Uh, so I don't know. I just he just a, he was a hell of a guy. But he he was very offended. He took a lot of pride in those cookouts he had for the guys. He they did that for years. Uh, he'd he'd do he'd cook a brisket or a bunch of ribs or something, and they'd make desserts and all that stuff. And uh, he had a pool table in his basement, so he would the boys would play pool, drink beer, and eat till they're they're gluttony. Uh, so, but he was such a great host, and he loved being around the guys. He loved the wrestling business. He loved the people in the wrestling business. And he was always proud that he was one of them. Not only was just one of them, he was the best one of them all because he was a traveling world champion. He didn't work the just Monday night raw or AEW this or whatever. He traveled the world working several nights a week globally with travel, not nearly as refined as it is now, uh, and all those things. But he, he was the last really over the top successful traveling champion. And you can't even compare anybody in today's market to that because as much as somebody would like to say how many days a year they work to make themselves martyrs, uh, it wasn't nearly like it was in his era. It just wasn't travel was, it was a lot more challenging then than it is now. And uh, he was just, I saw Rick mentions that to do with Rick, when Rick and I are talking today about Harley before we do we record the show. You know, that was, that was the whole thing of the boys respected Harley is overwhelming because Rick did that traveling too. He knows exactly what that life's like. I had many, many conversations with the late Jack Briscoe about that. And I understood his side of it. Nobody liked those extended stays away from home. And they're trying to monetize every night's pay as best they could. And they did that through these side deals. And they do that like Harley did with Baba. And they did it by getting over and selling tickets and earning those paydays. Let's, uh, let's get to Twitter. Uh, we, we asked you guys to ask us some questions. And one of the questions was exactly answered right there. And this was the one I was going to start with. Why did sports illustrated call him the last world's champion? And do you agree? But clearly you do. And that one came to us from Caleb. Let's talk about uh, another question here from Ryan Crandall. And we've heard lots of legendary stories about what a badass Mr. Race was, but can you tell us a story showing his softer side? Yeah, he loved children. Uh, and no matter when you saw Harley, he'd always ask about your family. Family was big to him. And, and that may sound ironic to those because Harley had multiple marriages. I can raise my hand on that one. Uh, and he felt guilty because of all the travel. I can also relate to that. And he tried to make up for lost time. Harley loved children. Uh, and he, he just, I, I, he just had a soft heart. He had a soft heart for guys that were on down in their luck. 
soft heart for guys that were almost ready to quit the business because they just didn't think they could make it now. They didn't get the push they needed. There's always somebody else. And Harley would have those soft spot, like your moments that you're talking about, with talents that just felt like, you know, God almighty, I can't. You know, Harley saved a lot of guys from quitting and gave them some pointers on how to get better at what they do. And if you do better what you do, you might get over and make some money. He was a good teacher in that regard and patient, patient. He didn't have short tempered. He'd, he'd give you, a, he'd answer your question and in, in succinctly, but he was patient to give you an answer and we'll give you the second answer. If you ask another question, another question here from Twitter, this one comes to us from Hawk fan rumor has it. Harley could bend a bottle cap between his fingers. If true, did JR ever witness this? Never did witness it, but I don't, I don't doubt it. Uh, I know he could open a beer with his teeth. Uh, that was easy for him. Uh, but that does, that would not surprise me again. It's going to be hard for some people to believe going back and look at classic Hardy race tapes. The fact that in that Greensboro match where he vertical suplexed Andre, the giant, he obviously had uncanny, uh, strength, obviously the, the, the mystery of it was he didn't look like he had, he didn't look like Tony Atlas or somebody he, he, but he was a bad motor scooter, but I'm telling you. Uh, and that's kind of what stuck up a lot of guys. He go into a bar, rick all, rick all the quarters off, put his quarter on there. And then, then the, then the tough guy in the bar sees a, a guy that's not huge and has big bulging muscles. They said, give him a try. Then he assumes he's right-handed and boom, his lights go out. Hardy loved knocking people out. <laughs> he, he really did. He really did. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, what can you recommend that some of our listeners knock out on the WWE network? Is there one match? or one moment or one angle in particular that you would recommend everybody go back and check out on the WWE network. Yeah. I go back and look at that, uh, the, the match that made Ric Flair because it started, it ended quasi ended an era, the race era, and it launched the career of arguably, uh, the greatest NWA champion of all time, uh, hand crafted hand designed. Cause I'm sure I'll assure you that uh, knowing Nate, uh, that Hardy called that match and laid it all out. If it was like the match I call where you didn't hear him call one spot or junior, uh, but Hardy was the, the general and that match shows you how to put somebody over, but before they beat you, you look like a champion. So then when you lose the guy you're anointing actually looks better than he should. And that was his gift. He always made everybody look better than they were. And, but on this occasion, he did an amazing job there, but any of those matches, uh, that Hardy, some of that stuff, uh, look on the uh, Houston site of the WWE, uh, network. Uh, and there's a lot of great matches he had for Paul Bosch down in Houston, but I, I always go back to the original, the one that put, it's like, uh, uh, it's like the old saying, I'm not the guy, but I'm the guy that beat the guy. Harley was the guy and he made Rick what Rick is, got him launched and it made Rick. Uh, and of course, Harley's endorsement by doing that opened the door to every NF NWA office in the world. Cause it Harley had they, the flair had Harley's endorsement and that carried a lot of weight with the promoters who thought Rick might not have been the best candidate with Rick. Dusty and Ted DiBiase because Rick was a party guy. You know, he's changed, he's changed his style. He did 
Rick did more things going off his feet voluntarily more than anybody uh, preceding him in, in that title. He just did different things. And, uh, some, some old school guys didn't like the sizzle. They wanted more steak. Little do they know until they saw him that the Nates could deliver all the steak he could eat. And we hope that you guys are eating up what we're doing here on the show next week. We're going to be bringing you a Q and a episode. And then the following week we're visiting SummerSlam 09. And then we're going to round the month out visiting the one and only CM Punk. Uh, so stay tuned for the rest of the month here for grilling JR. But before you know it, man, August 17th is going to be here and you and I are going to be getting together right there in Charlotte, North Carolina with all our rowdy friends. Tickets are on sale now, JR and Conrad.com. If you're out of the you are about to bear witness to an historic event for the first time in world wrestling federation history a historic coronation at this time i give you bobby the brain keenan Hear ye, hear ye, friends, fans, and loyal subjects. You are about to witness the most important coronation in the history of the world. You have witnessed royal weddings, inaugurations, but this coronation eclipses them all. to see. We're seeing wrestling history here. Not too, what is What is that? Look at that crown. And Harley Race in all his regalness being congratulated by Professional wrestlers, I think they're the only ones clapping, however. I don't think I've ever quite seen anything like this in the World Wrestling Federation before. Now standing, Bobby, oh no, give me 
me a break. Oh, brother. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.